You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 551. Yeah, he's something in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 2C at the Hilton in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Today's show is recorded on the 5th of January, 2023. Yeah, he's up in the sky. Today's episode, an airport worker is sucked into a plane's engine in Alabama. The U.S. says a Chinese fighter flew within 20 feet of a U.S. plane. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, crash investigation is no accident. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 551 is ready to push back. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining us today from his studio... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire... Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Uh, lovely to be back on the show. Looking forward to 551. And uh, just like to point out that the United Kingdom has had the hottest year last year in, in re- beat all records. You can tell by my uh, back garden. It's wow, yeah, very it's, tropical now. It, it looks it? very tropical there in England. Yeah, it's gorgeous here now. You ought to come visit. And people are complaining about this whole climate global warming thing. <laughs> hey, it looks like you're you're <laughs> doing much better. It's working fine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right, and uh, here's someone from a place to stand and a place to grow in Toronto, Ontario, <laughs> Ontario. Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, oh, Liz. And we also have a live uh, stu- or live studio audience uh, person over here to my stage left or stage right. I don't know. It's one of those things. This way, my left hand. Uh, Rebecca Saylor uh, from Ajax Jr., Airlines is with us. Uh, she resides in this area, and uh, it's so nice to see her again. Thank, thank you for joining me in the live studio, Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. You're very brave coming and joining this bunch of lunatics. It's nice to be here. All right. Yeah, she is very brave. Okay. Have a good show, guys. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Liz. All right. Let's do some uh, news. Stand by for news. Thank you, Paul Harvey. 
All right, let's start with this piece of tragic news. Uh, just uh, a few days back on the 31st of December uh, 2022, an envoy, Embraer ERJ-175, on behalf of American Airlines, registration November 264, November, November, performing flight 3408 from Montgomery, Alabama to Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, was preparing for departure at the gate when a baggage handler was killed, being ingested into the left-hand engine. The FAA confirmed a fatality occurred while Flight 3408 was still at the gate. The airport was closed for several hours as a result. The NTSB is investigating. The family of the baggage handler reported the ground worker involved was a wife and mother of three. Uh, the NTSB stated that the aircraft was parked at the gate with the parking brakes on, when a ground worker was ingested into an engine. And uh, now um, we've just found out recently uh, that uh, there is a GoFundMe. And so let me uh, put that up on the screen here um, and share that. Here we go. Um, In loving memory of Courtney Edwards, a GoFundMe is set up for uh, Danielle Profit. Um, anyway, she was the young mother of three uh, who was killed in this accident. So we'll have information about the GoFundMe campaign if uh, you want to help out uh, the, the family uh, that's left behind of this uh, tragedy. Really no other details. I mean, the airplane was not moving. It was at the gate. As I said, the park brakes set. And um, it just kind of goes to show the incredible power that these engines have, even, I'm guessing, at idle power. If you get too close, uh, very large intake, uh, and these big fans can suck you right in into them. And, uh, I mean, I don't know what really else to say other than it's a tragedy and we, our hearts and prayers uh, go to uh, her family and friends. Well, you're quite right, Jeff. It's an awful situation to happen and, you know, very, very sad. Um, However, it is a a pretty dangerous working environment for the ground personnel around an aircraft. Um, Those engines are, you know, they're... They're not in a safe position unless it's an aircraft like yours where they're way up on the tail. Uh, most uh, aircraft have uh, potted engines under the wings. Uh, they're right at people height. Uh, and uh, unless you're very, very careful, if you're used to moving around the aircraft and you don't appreciate that uh, the engines are running, it would be very easy to uh, step in front uh, and um, you know just be pulled off your feet. Um, I, I, funnily enough, when this first happened, I didn't know many of the facts. I assumed it, they had taxied in and they, we were, t- they were talking about the fact they had no auxiliary power unit, which meant that, um, they would have had to have kept their engines running for longer, uh, because they needed to get ground power on the aircraft uh, before they shut down the engines. So there was no interruption of light, lighting and air conditioning, that sort of thing, in the cabin, which obviously is a bit upsetting. If you're a passenger, you'd be a bit worried about that. Pardon me if the light suddenly went out. Because normally when you shut down the auxiliary power unit, 
provides those services. But it sounds like this was on startup, perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure. In which case, they would have started up, uh, if they didn't have an APU, they'd have started up on stand at least one engine. Um, in the 340, we used to have to start two engines to get full electrical power so we could disconnect the ground power. Um, and if you're not familiar with those procedures, if you're still walking around, and because normally the aircraft push back with the engines dead and they start up during the pushback once they've got a reasonable distance away from their parking position. Uh, and uh, there's no real threat to people like baggage handlers who are wandering around. Um, so, you know, you have to ask yourself what safety procedures there are uh, in force to advise people that the engines are running and that they're to be extra careful uh, around the aircraft. Uh, and for my entire flying career, uh, I was advised that all our company personnel and all personnel we employed to uh, come to our aircraft would obey the fact that the aircraft anti-collision beacon was a signal that the engines were running and that you weren't to approach the aircraft. So uh, we didn't, if uh, we were in this situation, we used to leave the beacon running until we'd shut down all the engines and then the last thing that went off was the beacon and then people could approach. Uh, and the same thing when you started the engines. The beacon went on very early so that people had time to move away and then you'd start your engines. So I, I don't know, uh, but chatting uh, with our friends uh, like um, Colonel Jeff, the handsome Captain Jeff, uh, he said that was not recognized in his experience in the United States. So I just wondered what the situation was in the U.S. Well, first of all, I didn't realize until you just mentioned it that the uh, APU was an op and they were using those kind of procedures. Um, and I'm thinking nothing that I have here in Evernote says anything about that. But I, I just looked at uh, the source from uh, the uh, Aviation Herald. And so is that what you're basing that information on, the uh, comments? That it was from in? the discussion we had in our little forum of experts oh, that okay. we often chat to. That's gotcha. where I gleaned that nugget from, and I assumed it was general knowledge. Sorry. Oh, no, that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear it um, because that was information that uh, I didn't know anything about. So, uh, yeah, that, that changes a lot when it comes to uh, how this may have happened. Um, yeah. So, now, I've, I've, that's, I don't know if they've got multiple sources of information to indicate that that was the situation. So we're not convinced that that is correct or not, but it has been mentioned in relation to this accident. And for those of you who don't realize, um, not having an auxiliary power unit um, means that you're running the engines uh, in your parking position so that you've got electrical power to the aircraft so that you can then pull out the ground power that would have been providing it and you push back with your engines already running which is not common so if you've got ground personnel around who haven't aren't aware of the subtleties of that change in the position at when you the time when you start your engines may not have realized which might be down to training uh, and uh, awareness and uh, you know whoever's supervising the safety on the ramp um uh, you know, just not being, not making sure that all the personnel there understand what's going on. I'm sure there will be lessons, many lessons to be learned. But in my experience, and I hate to say it, 
uh, one area that is continually has continually concerned me over the, all the years I was flying was safety on the ramp, partly because it's hard with all the different types of people from working with different companies doing different jobs around aircraft. It's hard to ensure that they have all received training. It's not like they all work for the airline. They Many of them don't. Many of them work for subcontracted um, organizations. So you're not often completely aware of how good their training is, their safety training. So, so that's a problem. Um, and, um, you know, you really do need to make sure that everybody comes under the same safety umbrella. It's, it's not an easy thing to achieve. Yeah. It's just, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, the ramp, is a dangerous place, especially when you're talking most of the aircraft out there that have uh, wing-mounted engines, um, and even the big ones like you used to fly, uh, Nick, you, as you mentioned, what they still come up to about waist level or so, the bottom of the uh, intakes. Oh, yeah, the imports, yeah, they definitely, yeah. yeah. So, um, and then when you have a situation like this with a an operative APU, which is not a, I guess with this airplane, it's not a common thing. Um, yeah, I can definitely see confusion uh, contributing to, or misunderstanding uh, contributing to this uh, this terrible accident. And uh, in this case, it might be a, a great idea when an airplane's coming in uh, that has an APU and operative uh, that you kind of have a safety huddle and talk about, you know, what what's going to be different and how are we going to be, you know, safe and smart about this operation and. Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, in my experience, when I was operating without an APU and I knew I was going to be leaving the engines running uh, after taxing in, uh, I would try and get the message ahead. Uh, but the, the, you know, the <laughs> communication between us and their traffic is, is easy. Getting the message from the company frequency even to our ground personnel who are at that particular gate uh, is a nightmare. Um, it used to be really, really hard. Uh, and you say, well, okay, but I mean, you eventually somebody's going to plug into a headset and you're going to spot, speak to them, the person on the ground there, you know, but you've got to have parked in your position and they've got to have had a headset. And after a while, they began to try and speed this up by not requiring headsets for you when you taxi in. And trying to get the message to the ground crew that you've still got two engines running as you taxi in and that everyone's to keep clear until the ground power has been connected. Because they're not approaching the airplane with the ground power because you've still got the beacon running. And you're trying to get the message to them, uh, which you can't. You can't shout out of the window. It's ridiculous uh, that you've got to get the ground power before you shut down. It becomes a, a really frustrating safety potential a bad you know safety potential uh hazard for the for you and uh, everybody around you well not so much for us because we're in no danger but all the people on the ground are right and as you mentioned at the beginning uh, when we started this discussion uh, the airplane that i fly and most of my career i've flown airplanes with tail mounted engines are way up in the air and and uh, out of the way uh, out of harm's way uh, is uh, I'm glad that uh, that's the configuration uh, that I fly because it just you know reduces the amount of risk um, involved. Yeah. yeah, I remember pushing back from uh, 
a gate at DCA and uh, the guy goes, uh, clear to start number two. And we always, on this airplane uh, and the Mad Dog, it was a Mad Dog actually, uh, we always started the uh, number one engine first and then the second one. But it doesn't really matter. There's no reason not to start the number two first and then the number, you know, it's just like what, you know, half a dozen, one, six, the other. And uh, the guy said, and I said, why did he just say clear to start number two? I said, you know, I can't start number one. He said, no, because we have personnel in the way or something like that. And I'm thinking, that engine is like way they up on the They must be tail. very tall. Yeah. <laughs> Are these people on stilts? I looked over at my first officer like, what am I missing here? What? How are how is anybody in 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 you know risk from starting one or the other? I mean, nobody should be back there anywhere near those engines. <laughs> anyway, so I just went okay, <laughs> and I just looked over him and I said, just start like you know what we normally do. <laughs> just like, just forget it. I don't want to have a, an argument with the guy. Anyway, um, yeah, again, uh, a tragedy. And as you said, Nick, I'm, I'm sure that we're going to learn something from this uh and uh we'll we'll try to make it a much safer operation in the future but god what a yeah, tragedy. it's gonna be hard it's gonna be hard having seen all the different ways and all the different permutations at different airfields in different countries of how they organize ramp safety and ramp communications it's often mm-hmm. completely different from one airfield to an, to another yeah and and the i don't know how many times we mentioned this on the show i mean at least once a show Communication is so important and it's essential. And what especially, did you say, Jeff? I can't, I, I can't understand what well, you well, said. Okay, listen, Liz. Are we communicating? Oh, okay. Well, no, I, uh, see, now <laughs> I'm having trouble communicating with Liz and she's having trouble <laughs> communicating with me. <laughs> That's, see how important that is? Um, anyway, uh, but uh, the night. same frustration, Nick, going into a gate and trying to use hand signals, which, you know, some people may know. Others may not. Others may think that the hand signal you're using means something different than what you right. think. It's, uh, yeah, it's very frustrating at times when yep. you go. And, and my frustration stems uh, mostly in my in my history and anecdotal experience with uh, APUs being inoperative and flying down to a very hot place like in southern Florida and trying to get them to connect um, error you know, air conditioned air to the airplane before I shut down the engine. And they're just looking at me like, okay, the power's in, you know, and they're kind of giving you the signal for the power. And I'm trying to give them the signal for the air, which is very similar. (laughs) And they're just like, they're just trying to figure out, well, why, what, what's going on? Don't, I know a signal you could have given them. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. Then after a while they start giving you the other signals that uh, you, that are pretty clear. (laughs) Um, Anyway. (laughs) Ah, we could talk for hours uh, about this, but uh, I I guess we should move on. We have a lot of news. All right. um, Moving on to the next item uh, from fox13now.com. Provo, Utah. Uh, One person is dead and three others injured after a small plane crashed Monday afternoon at the Provo airport. Provo city officials said uh, the private Airplane uh, crashed immediately after takeoff around 11.30 a.m., 11.35 a.m., that is. One person died at the scene. Another was taken to the hospital with critical injuries, and two other people received what appears to be minor bumps and bruises, which is pretty darn amazing when you're looking at these pictures, which we'll have in the show notes, and Liz is showing us right now on the video how anybody (laughs) survived this crash is just beyond me. 
Um, one of the eyewitnesses. Wow, that's uh, pretty mangled, isn't it? Uh, it is. Um, let's see. The airport. The airport was shut down following the crash, um, and they didn't. Uh, they said that there was going to be closed until at least noon on Tuesday. Uh, Provo Airport Manager Brian Torgerson said the aircraft only made it about 10 feet off the ground before going down. It's just nobody knows what happened, he said. Immediately after takeoff, something occurred to cause the aircraft to lose control. Uh, there was another eyewitness report that said that looked like the airplane got about 10 feet off the ground. Left wing dropped pretty significantly and dramatically and quickly and hit the runway. Broke the wing off, and then the rest of the airplane just kind of cartwheeled down the runway. And, um, yeah, as I said, one one dead, uh, one critically injured, the, the pilot in the left seat uh, dead. The uh, right seat, I'm not sure if he was a pilot or, or a passenger sitting in the right seat, but uh, critically injured. And then the two ladies on board um, in the back of the aircraft, I think it was a um, um, – Embraer uh, Phenom 300, I think, 100 or 300, um, private jet. And, uh, you know, they they just kind of walked away with minor injuries, which is, again, a miracle to me. Well, that is remarkable. I mean, that weather that the photographs illustrate looks pretty awful. Um, do we know uh, if that was the sort of conditions when they got airborne, or is that sometime after? I'm just thinking... I I'm thinking that it was, you know it was what what we see here in the you know the snow covered um, taxiways runway well between the taxiways and runways and then there's looks like some kind of a berm in the background of that other photo but looking at this picture that we're seeing right now Liz on the um, screen uh, looking at the airplanes in the background looks like they're covered in snow maybe yeah. ice so that that's what sort of made the hairs on the back of my neck. And Pip is also putting his money on right. icing. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, a, a, an executive jet uh, in the UK. Um, it uh, had just frost on it, and uh, the sun had melted the frost from one wing, but it hadn't melted the frost on the other, and the crew went, it's only frost, uh, and tried to get airborne, and exactly this happened. Mm-hmm. You know, they they tried to get airborne. One wing stalled, uh, and the aircraft just at very low altitude rolled upside down and crashed. Um, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened to this one, but of course, you know, I, I'm looking at the conditions, going, "Wow, that looks very similar." Yeah, it does. And we have uh, several people in our APG community who have experience with the jet, and some who are currently. Um, checked out in the uh, airplane or one very much like it. And uh, I, you know, it's, and, and then we've been having discussions in the, in, you know, behind the scenes regarding this. And, you know, of course, nobody knows for sure, but as uh, Pip said, he strongly suspects that it has something to do with icing. And, you know, based on the characteristics of the witness reports, you know, and the wing just dropping pretty suddenly and dramatically uh, sounds to me like just, you know, loss of lift, which may indeed have occurred because of, ice on the wings that wasn't removed. Um, I, my initial thought when I heard about this accident, I didn't know what the weather conditions were at the time. Um, I was thinking that maybe it was some kind of a engine failure scenario that just went bad. Um, but, uh, and maybe the, you know, confusion about what rudder to use and pushing the wrong rudder. And then it, but, um, you know, icing, I think you're right. Uh, seems to be, uh, of course we're just, um, 
you know, guessing, uh, but it does sound like it might be a, a strong candidate for the cause of this accident. But we're going to find out, of course, the NTSB is investigating. I'm sure we'll hear something. Uh, oh, NTSB. Soon. Yeah, there's a, a, a nice segue for my plane tail. Should we put it on? Okay, right now? Okay, let me <laughs> find it. Only joking. Oh, okay. Only joking. Just, just bear that thought in mind for later. Okay. Um, anything else to say about uh, Pip thinks this it, one? He believes it was snowing at the time, oh. which adds to the, you know, okay. mm, I wonder. Yeah, I'm but not. Anyway. I thought, you know, uh, the, some of the early reports that I was reading said that um, they were indicating that they didn't think weather was a factor. Uh, okay. But again, well, I don't know if they're experts perhaps on that. Visibility and uh, cloud based, that sort of thing. But, you mm -hmm. know, perhaps not keeping their aircraft clean. I don't know. Right. We'll yeah, find I mean, out. That's, you know, in, in an indirect way, weather related in my mind. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, okay. Um, we'll, we'll keep our ears and eyes open for updates on that in the meantime. Now, this, this next one, <laughs> I, I am looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. The U.S. says a Chinese fighter jet flew dangerously close to an American plane. This is from the New York Times. Okay. A uh, Chinese jet flew within 20 feet of the nose of an American military aircraft. Didn't look that close to me. Over the South China Sea this month, nearly causing a collision, the U.S. military said. Um, let's see. Um, skipping down here because I keep reading these paragraphs over and over. Um, the U.S. Air Force uh, aircraft, I think it was an RC-135, uh, was conducting routine operations over the South China Sea on December 21st. Uh, and the Chinese fighter jet flew dangerously close, nearly causing the planes to collide. The Chinese pilot of a J-11 jet performed an unsafe maneuver, that's in quotes, flying in front and within 20 feet of the nose of a U.S. Air Force RC-135. Yeah, uh, The U.S. military said in a statement, adding that the American pilot was forced to take evasive maneuvers to avoid a collision. Okay, so maybe this would be a good time to uh, play a video of the of the accident not the accident the incident i guess is the right uh, way to say that oh of course i didn't set up any of my video files why would i <laughs> um all right let's see here chinese jet comes dangerously close all right and open and here we go okay so we're gonna watch this okay here's the chinese jet and um Looks pretty docile to me, and uh, I don't know. That's definitely more than twenty feet uh, in my eyeball calibration. Yeah. Maybe not, uh, but it's it's nothing. I I don't know. I the first I have to be honest with you. When I first looked at this, like right here at the beginning of the uh, video, I'm thinking it looks to me like the RC-135 is actually the one that's moving relative to the. Chinese fighter jet, but maybe it's just a weird optical illusion. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think I, I don't see the evasive action that the one. Well, yeah, where's the evasive action? You might be banking now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I, the problem I see is that I can't see how the Chinese pilot uh, kept a good visual on the position of the one thirty-five throughout his maneuvers here. Uh, I don't 
I mean, from what I used to do, you used to do exactly what these Chinese blokes do. I was going to say, let me interrupt you. Uh, yeah. For good reason, because uh, Captain Nick, for those of you who may not be familiar with his history in the Royal Air Force, flew F-4s, and you routinely did this sort of thing, right? You intercepted aircraft. And, and yeah. in this case, you're the Chinese J-11 yeah. uh, interceptor, and the RC-135 would be a Soviet bear bomber. And uh, yeah, uh, I don't know why the inter the interceptor would be so far ahead of the uh, of the airplane being intercepted. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's that's why no, I want. And, and it's not something that we we did regularly because it, it it's a hard formation position to hold uh, mm -hmm. when you're forward of the wing. Uh, because uh, you know that the, the um, turbulence from your aircraft is, if you're that close, is going to pinch on the wing. So you don't really want to have, and it might cause that wing to drop and the guy to turn into you, which could be very embarrassing, uh, inadvertently turn into you. Um, so w we rarely came abeam the cockpit. We did occasionally, but we were usually out, out of his uh, wingspan. So we were probably... I don't know, 100 feet away, perhaps 75 feet away, um, uh, if we came abeam the cockpit. Um, we were much closer down the back end of the fuselage where there's much less chance of uh, bumping into him. Um, so, yeah, we, we did. Um, the only time that we used to do these kind of manoeuvres, um, right up uh, abeam the cockpit, was if we were on our, one of our own tankers, um, trying to um, do a no-radio uh, tanker join and get some fuel off him. Often they were fast asleep, we reckoned, and uh, this, <laughs> we used to come and beam the cockpit and that waggle our wings. That was the signal for we want some gas. And they'd drop the probe, the drogues out of their pods behind to indicate that, oh, yeah, okay, well, here, here go the hoses. Go. <laughs> yep, you can have some gas. Uh, and if they didn't, we'd, we'd assume they were asleep. So we would just try and manoeuvre to cast our shadow over the cockpit a couple of times. And hopefully we'd, we'd wake them up because <laughs> we weren't supposed to use the radio. And that's when we would be in those kind of positions. Um, but th that was very rare. We, we wouldn't generally be th that far forward uh, with a Russian aircraft or a Soviet aircraft. Uh, no, don't know quite why they're doing that. Having said that, the international um, interception signals um, require you to come abeam the cockpit because the, the flight crew have to see you. If you're going to do a proper, I have intercepted you, you're now required to follow me signal. You need to come up well forward so that they have a chance to see you. Then you waggle your wings and start doing the internationally recognized signals, which he isn't doing, I might add. He's just drifted around. Um, I think it might be possible that he lost a bit, lost sight and a little became a little bit uh, unsure of the position of the 135. But if that was true, he should have banked away rather than allow himself to drift even closer. I don't like what the Chinese pilots do doing. I don't think he was in full control of the situation. Um, and I think the 135 crew were being sensible and probably banking away from him. Um, but having said that, <laughs> there's a very tense situation down in this piece of airspace yes. with... The Chinese government insisting it all belongs to them, uh, and uh, the American um, crews 
behaving perfectly rightfully in a piece of international airspace and flying around in it. You can't just claim airspace is yours. You can only claim the airspace over your own country or, or islands that belong to you. You can't just say this entire piece of airspace is ours and you can't come in it, which is effectively what the Chinese are doing in some areas which they're sensitive about. So uh, I think this might be the Chinese pilot trying to uh, interpret his commander's orders and make sure the American uh, dogs don't come anywhere near them uh, or something like that. I don't know. It's um, it's an interesting one. My professional opinion is that the U.S. Air Force RC-135 intercepted that Chinese fighter jet <laughs> and, well, about snuck, him down. and snuck up on him and <laughs> yeah. they didn't even know he was there. And Could uh, be. just to create an international incident. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, those 135 drivers, they're dreadful. I do think yeah, that uh, part of this whole thing uh, has something to do with the, the politics of the the whole, oh, most certainly, uh, the relationship and the politics of that yeah. South China Sea, and and uh, I think that this may have been something that they, oh, this is something we can put out in the news and like draw attention to all this. I I, I don't know, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just being yeah. skeptical, but I I do like uh, Neil's uh, question. Um, did anybody ever get too close, uh, Nick? And then, of course, <laughs> Pip's response: Nick got quite close to me once. It wasn't entirely awful. <laughs> okay, well, keep that to yourself, Pip. Um, Neil's question is, uh, to my not to my knowledge, no one, no one actually bumped. Uh, to my knowledge, um, one of our guys did try to uh, get some pictures up into the um, bay that ejected uh, sonar boys out of a uh, Soviet bear. So this guy had his, was dropping Cernoboys and he had his, his um, dispenser doors open. Uh, so um, Woody tried to uh, get underneath it and his nav was trying to take pictures of what was going on. And one of these Cernoboys came out and hit the top of his fuselage. Oh, no. Yeah, and, and then the, and the drogue had deployed and the drogue got wrapped around his fin. <laughs> so he's dragging this sonar boy tangled up with his fin around behind him and he actually tried to bring it all the way home. But eventually the, the cords that you know, held the, uh -huh. the, the parachute part wore through and it fell off. <laughs> Good thing, huh? Yeah, well, he had nothing but a dent in the fuselage there to show for it in the huh. end. Wow. That uh, is not something that uh, I guess he was expecting. Uh, well, I, I, he was right underneath this. Well, dispenser. I guess he should have expected it. <laughs> yes, I was but he, he's not the brightest boy, you know. He, We're talking one, about Nigel. One sandwich short of a picnic. <laughs> don't worry, I don't think he's listening. Okay. <laughs> Oh, man. Right, moving on. Good one. All right. Let's uh, continue on uh, from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Uh, United Airlines flight to Sydney forced to divert to island in the middle of the South Pacific after engine is shut down. A United Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Sydney was forced to divert to Pango Pango, by the way. Uh, there's another uh, very, very uh, nice uh, video program podcast kind of thing out there. And uh, the pronunciation was uh, Pago Pago, which is the way I pronounced it before I flew the uh, Southern Pacific and 
was chided for mispronouncing, even though it says P-A-G-O. I guess for some reason the uh, the what do you call them? The uh, Polynesians and Samoans uh, pronounce the G as an NG, so it's Pango Pango. Anyway, um, they feared that uh, one of the engines on the Boeing 787 Dreamliner was uh, uh, had a leak um, uh, developing. And oh, so Liz, save that one. I'm sorry, I should have briefed okay, you on that. Um, so uh, yeah, you can show the uh, flight path on uh, FlightAware. Yeah, so uh, you can see from that uh, the flight was heading from Los Angeles, and then oh, about a little more than halfway, um, the um, engine started uh, looking like it was uh, leaking oil, and uh, so they decided to shut it down as a precaution and they diverted to the, you know, they have all these divert uh, airports along their route to uh, consider when they have an issue. And uh, I guess Pango Pango American Samoa was the uh, one that was closest on their, on their routing. And so they put it down there and uh, let's see the, um, after shutting down the right in right hand engine, uh, the seven-and-a-half-year-old aircraft was brought down to a lower altitude before landing without further incident around two-and-a-half hours later at Pango Pango International Airport. Um, so, uh, and, of course, we all know, uh, those of us who fly, especially the long-haul stuff, uh, that uh, or any actual um, jet aircraft out there, multi-engine, when you lose an engine, you have to do something called a drift-down procedure because you can't stay up at that higher altitude with uh, you know fewer than the normal uh, complement of engines. So one of the first things you do is you start you know moving off course. If you have contact with air traffic control, you let them know that you need a lower altitude and all that, and then you get the, all that going. And that's why uh, this article talks about the fact that the uh, Aircraft uh, was brought down to a lower altitude and then after a couple of hours finally um, landed at the uh, divert airport. So honestly, it's not – It's uh, the only thing that really is kind of inner, remarkable. remarkable, yeah, remarkable or, you know, significant about this or interesting. Yes, thank you, Liz, uh, is the fact that uh, Pango Pango – a lot of people are going, what the heck, American Samoa? So this is my experience. When I flew in the uh, uh, the C-141 Starlifter in the U.S. Air Force back in the 80s uh, and was flying on a trip, and we were going to stop at Pango Pango American Samoa for fuel on the way down to Australia, um, I thought, Pango what what are they saying? What American Samoa, what does that mean? I didn't even know this place existed, and I had no idea it was an American territory. Uh, but we did um, – I think we weren't supposed to stay there overnight. We were just supposed to refuel, but something happened. I think there was an issue with the airplane, and we had to uh, oh, sure. stay there overnight. And Liz, trust me, we didn't want to – well, I don't know. It It was an interesting experience. Um, the Now you can show the next slide. So um, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but uh, the guy in a little tiny Toyota sedan uh, wearing one of those, I don't know what you call them, sarongs or something like that, the uh, yeah, Samoan or Polynesian, uh, like a big, you know, fancy towel, uh, picked, picked us up and we went in this little couple of these cars because they weren't very big and took us to a place called the um, Rainmaker Hotel. Show the next one. I think that's the sign for uh, the Hotel Intercontinental. 
and Pango Pango. And then go back again on the uh, shot from an old, it's a very old picture of the resort in its heyday in the 60s and 70s. Now, it was probably 1983, 1984 when we ended up staying there, but it was still pretty, you know, it wasn't in tip top shape, but it wasn't bad. Uh, turns out not long after I stayed there in the mid 80s, uh, they it just kept going downhill and downhill and they finally shut it down. I think it was run by the uh, the government of the uh, American Samoa. And uh, there's a I'll have a link to a Wikipedia article regarding this um, this international resort in uh, in the Samoan island chain. And this is like the nicest thing out there. It was a it was really kind of a cool place like thatched uh grass roofs and oh it's also the place where i lost my wedding band for for the first time um <laughs> yes I, I lost it more than once that you gave it away to my original one the, the original wedding band got lost and uh yeah um not not a good memory there but i just just to prove that i uh have been to um pango pango american mm-hmm. samoa this is my little souvenir it's a little tiny little mug here let me see if i can Bring it in closer here on the video. Yeah, Yeah, Samoa. Anyway, I was just you about to drown. Yeah, so I was. It's a beautiful place, absolutely beautiful island. And again, as I said, I had no idea that this was an American territory, so far away from the United States. But uh, yeah, pretty cool. Anyway, so um, as you said, Liz, probably the reason why that this was remarkable was that it was a little island that most people have never heard of that they had to uh, divert to. But um, now, unfortunately, there was really no place for them to stay. I think that was like one of the only uh, hotels on the island when we were there, or maybe maybe one of only a, a handful. But um, I don't think there are any now. Um, it's not really a tourist trap anymore, as it used to be, I guess. What were you saying, Liz? This is what made it interesting getting to see your mug. Yeah, that's right. That that was really the main reason why we decided to talk about this story, so I could show you my mug that I got from American Samoa. Your face and your well, mug. that's brilliant. Yeah. Although I, the uh, the new the story would have been really newsworthy had they not diverted, because yeah. <laughs> they're flying that over over that huge ocean with only two engines, under the extended twin operations rules, ETOPS which requires you, uh, as soon as you lose a power plant, to divert immediately. And, uh, you know, you, you have to, you're only allowed to uh, be a certain distance in time away from a suitable diversion, en-route diversion. And then that time depends upon many factors. Uh, I can't go into all that now. But, um, yeah, uh, it was a foregone conclusion. As soon as they decided that the uh, they needed to shut the engine down, they were going to divert uh, because that's what the laws in which they're operating that flight uh, require them to do. So, yeah, and it's uh, the, the safe thing to do. You've got two engines, you've just lost one. Time to put it on the nearest available airport. Juan Brown uh, on his uh, Blancalirio YouTube channel, and um, I'll make I'll try to remember to put the link to that in the show notes for this news item as well. Did a fantastic job of what Nick just kind of teased there as far as all the many considerations for identifying um, ETOPS uh, alternates and diversions and that kind of thing. And he he goes through and in depth on all the things that were happening, all the considerations, how you pick these different places and all the procedures as far as, you know, 
30 degrees off course and descending and a drift down. And, and anyway, did a, a beautiful job of that. So again, I uh, highly recommend that you watch uh, Blanca Lirio, uh, Juan Brown's uh, channel regarding this incident. Okay. Um, let's continue with the next item. Um, this is from Paddle Your Own Canoe as well. A miscommunication error has been blamed for a flight to nowhere. That so, I would think that that wouldn't cost very much money, right? A flight to nowhere, since you're not really going. You'd be anywhere. wrong. I would be wrong. Okay. Um, let's see. A flight uh, to nowhere that saw a Bali, 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 a bound plane full of holly, holiday makers fly straight back to Melbourne, Australia, where it had taken off from. At, from after spending eight hours in the air over Australia, disgruntled passengers blasted low-cost airline Jetstar after the blunder left them back on the ground in Victoria rather than on the golden beaches of Bali on Tuesday. Already running five hours late, Jetstar Flight 35 departed Melbourne at 11.14 p.m. on Tuesday. The Boeing 787 Dreamliner had been in the air for about four hours and had crossed five states when it suddenly turned back around within minutes of reaching the Australian coast. Passengers found themselves back at Melbourne's uh, Tullamarine Airport uh, just before 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning following the mishap. The airline, a budget subsidiary of embattled Australian flag carrier Qantas, said the flight had been forced to divert because the Indonesian authorities refused to give permission for the aircraft to land in Bali. Jetstar normally uses smaller single-aisle aircraft like the Airbus A321 on this route. And it turns out the carrier failed to secure landing rights for the larger wide-body aircraft that was operating the service Oopsie. on Tuesday night. A spokesperson for the airline said, Oops, sorry, uh, said miscommunication was to blame. Unfortunately, due to a miscommunication, the swap to a larger aircraft had not been approved by the local regulator in Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia. They the sure, sure it wasn't miscommunication. Um, this yeah. poor miscommunication seems oh, it could to have be been all the blame That's, for this. Yeah, yeah. We're being yeah, very yeah, misogynistic right. here. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah, so the so you can maybe talk to us a little bit about that, uh, Captain Nick. The these international uh, flights are you know have to be quite vetted and. Uh, things agreed to upon the... Well, it's not something I'd come across before, Jeff, quite oh, okay. honestly. Before reading this, I didn't realize. I mean, admittedly, my airline uh, had, you know, only wide-body aircraft, so mm -hmm. we, we didn't really face this uh, issue. And I had no idea that they uh, might refuse uh, an airline to substitute an aircraft uh, because, you know, I'm going, what on earth difference does it make? So long as the aircraft, the wide-body is fit to land at uh, the destination, and I'm sure it would have been, Yeah. what would be the case? Uh, and I don't know the peculiarities of uh, Bali um, to say, you know, that, oh, no, we, we only allow a certain number of wide bodies to land because mm -hmm. the pavement, the, the runway uh, is getting worn out or something. I And I'm going, I, I don't know what the situation would be. It sounds to me like they just threw their toys out of the cot Rather than letting this aircraft go and land and then perhaps finding them, um, they they made them turn back. And I'm going, really? Uh, that is just silly. I don't understand. So I think it has more to do with paperwork and the people yeah. pushing the papers and yeah. uh, you know not Making dotting all point. the I's and crossing the T's yeah. and uh, not, Which you know, 
Yeah. So it, it would really annoy me if I was one of the passengers. Having said that, and this happened to my airline, we had just acquired uh, new permissions to fly over Russia on our way to Hong Kong. And the very first aircraft to go over there was uh, intercepted approaching Moscow and forced to land at Moscow because although this had been agreed at government level, the, the message hadn't got, got down to the air traffic controllers in Russia. Oh. And all of a sudden, this Virgin Atlantic 747 pitched up and they went, oh, she wasn't, it was a 340, uh, our fleet pitched up and they went, no, you can't, we don't know anything about that. You can't come through our country. You are to divert to Moscow immediately. And here's, to help you down, here's a MiG Here we <laughs> on go. your wing. Help. <laughs> That's right. Just so you don't escape. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the next day I was called out from standby to fly the passengers in a fresh airplane, having, you know, smoothed out all the international communication problems, uh, take the passengers on their second go, getting to Hong Kong. Um, well, and they were actually surprisingly um, good about it. I, I thought it all be very annoyed, but they, they weren't. I can, uh, you know, you can kind of not fault the air traffic controllers in Russia for, you know, they weren't told. So they were thinking that this was highly uh, unusual and uh, suspect. And, you know, somebody screwed up by not making sure everybody knew that this was yeah. happening. And, and it's a flight that occurs all through the night. So I think the chances of them waking up someone from the Politburo or or whatever organization they needed to check. They were, everyone was tucked up in bed. So they just said, oh, the safest thing is to make you go home. Because the guy had to turn around eventually after refueling at Moscow, which is another story in its own, because they wouldn't accept any of their company credit cards. Mm. They had to go around uh, cap around. in hand to the passengers and get cash. Yeah. And amazingly, there were some people carrying large amounts of cash on the wow. aircraft, which was lucky. So they managed to buy enough fuel to fly back to London. Hmm. Uh, and then the next day we had a go. And for us, it was a lot smoother. Uh, I think I encountered this myself when I was in the U.S. Air Force flying the 141 again, because we did a lot of international flying there where, you know, you thought you had a diplomatic clearance to overfly a certain country and then you find out you know right before as you're trying to coordinate going into that airspace they go nope no no soup for you <laughs> yes. you know and then you have to figure out if you can, no one told me yeah navigate around the area and still have enough fuel to make it to your destination and have all the required reserves and such and um i do also remember going from uh, darwin to uh the philippines and flying over some of these little Indonesian, they're really particular there in Indonesia, apparently. Uh, flying over these little uh, Indonesian islands that I wasn't even sure had electricity. Uh, and and we're like, you know, going 90 degrees this way and then 90 degrees this way. And that, you know, I'm thinking, really? I mean, what are they going to do if we just fly right over the top of this thing? Will they even know we're <laughs> flying over the top? You know, but apparently, you know, you just can't do it. If you don't have the dip clearance for it, then you, you have to take alternative measures. And yeah. It was like uh, we used to deploy to Cyprus down the Mediterranean, and you had to go between Turkish and Greek airspace. We found it was much simpler, instead of trying to get permission, uh, to fly down the FIR boundary. So you were, in theory, if you were exactly down the boundary between the two countries' airspaces, you weren't in one or the other. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> well, great one wings. wing is one, and one wing's on yeah, the other. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you either annoy nobody or annoy both of them. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. I Hall Boxes says China's like that. 80% is military. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, 80% of yeah. their country is military airspace. You, you can't yeah. really, you know, wander off too far off the path oh, no. that you're supposed and, to go. Uh, uh, and all of a sudden, they'll just close airspace at the drop of the hat without any notice, and you'll suddenly lose your cruising level and have to descend like 10,000 feet. And it's happened to me. I've been so far away from Shanghai that I didn't think I was going to get there. I was mm. going, well, where the hell are we going to divert to? Because at this height, we're going to use so much fuel, we won't have our minimum reserves when we get there. Mm. It became a real problem. I can see that for sure. All right, continuing. Uh, this is from Aviation Herald. Um, an ASL Airlines Belgium Boeing 737-400 freighter on behalf of FedEx Registration, Oscar Echo, India, Alpha, Juliet, performing flight 4959 from Porto, Portugal, to Liege, Belgium, with two crew, was cleared for takeoff from Porto's runway 35 and commenced takeoff at about 2147 local time, 947 dark. About 12 minutes earlier, Tower had cleared a follow-me vehicle to perform the nightly runway inspection. The vehicle entered runway 35, worked northbound, reaching the threshold of runway 17. The vehicle turned around to now move southbound when the driver saw bright lights near the threshold of runway 35, which seemed to be to, seemed to move and queried with Tower whether an aircraft was lining up on runway 35. Tower reported an aircraft was in their takeoff run and instructed the vehicle to immediately vacate the runway via the left runway edge. The Boeing crew saw two white lights but weren't sure whether these were runway edge lights due to the night environment. After becoming airborne and in the climb, the crew queried with Tower about the vehicle and received a reply that this was a misunderstanding. Uh, Portugal's GPIAA reported, uh, according to estimation by the vehicle driver as well as preliminary analysis of the ground radar, the separation between the vehicle and aircraft reduced to 300 meters. That's close. The occurrence was rated a serious incident and is being wow. investigated. Uh, they released that was on uh, April 27th of 2021. Uh, we're talking about it now because they released their final report on December 30th. The probable causes, the provision of air traffic uh, traffic services with unified tower and approach positions provided by a single controller, without any supervision, working in continuous duty without interruptions for an extended period of time, and a tedious and low activity environment. Okay, so obviously fatigue is a factor there. Archaic memory aid system, ineffective and totally dependent on human action to prevent simultaneous use of the runway by vehicles and aircraft. An inactive RIMCAS, runway incursion monitoring and collision avoidance system, that would have been helpful if it was working. A decision process on the application inhibition of technological tools, in particular the inhibition of RIMCAS without a risk analysis supported by facts or mitigation measures to allow such inhib inhibition. The absence of advanced ATC surveillance systems, including multilateration and electronic flight strips, which can offer additional protection when compared with traditional, entirely human-dependent systems. And the absence of H24 stop bars procedure or other equivalent lighting systems at all runway holding positions. Uh, and they have a few more here. I'm going to scroll down. I've highlighted uh, some that I think are kind of um, important. 
the lack of a single frequency for all aircraft and vehicle movements in the maneuvering area, as recommended by EAPPRI, I'm not sure what that stands for, uh, which would allow both flight crew and ground vehicle drivers to be aware of any possible threats to safety. I think that's critical. Unreliability of the radio scanners, which were installed by the infrastructure management in the follow me vehicles, which were not user-friendly and for which no formal training had been given to the drivers on how to operate them. The follow-me driver's decision not to actively monitor the aeronautical frequency, even though it was not a mandatory requirement, and the non-standardized manner of conducting the runway inspections. Okay, so there are a lot of of things that went wrong here. A lot of Funyuns. A lot of Funyuns, yes. They're all aligning for sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is – and 300 meters, that's like, what, 1,000 feet? Yeah. Maybe a little over 1,000 feet? That's close. That was close. Very close. Hmm. Um. But it's a good thing that this sort of thing doesn't happen very often. Oh, wait. What's our next news news article here? Uh, a TAP Air Portugal, Airbus A321-200, uh, was performing a flight from Lisbon to Ponta da Gada in Portugal with 180 passengers and six crew. It was cleared to land on Ponta da Gada's runway 30 and was already in the flare when the pilot monitoring spotted a white van at the right-hand side of the runway, about 650 meters down the runway. The crew initiated a go-around. Only after the aircraft initiated the go-around, Tower advised the vehicle on the runway. Oh, yeah. Watch out for that vehicle on the runway. Get off. (laughs) (laughs) The aircraft climbed to 5,000 feet, positioned for another approach, and landed without further incident. The vehicle had sped off the runway (laughs) after being overflown by the Airbus about 15 minutes after the go-around, and they have not seen that vehicle since. No. Um, So uh, let's see. This happened about a year ago, a year after that first incident. Uh, Different place, of course, but it was, um, you know, a very similar. Uh, uh, you know, a vehicle on a runway when airplane is either taking off or landing. Um, Again, they talk about the um, final report and the uh, conclusions. And they talk again about unified tower and approach positions, single controller, no supervision, work continuous duty without interruptions for an extended period of time. Okay, Okay. we've heard that one before. The archaic memory. It's like almost they took... Yep. The yeah. probable cause. Inactive rimcast. <laughs> yeah, the inactive rimcast again. Yeah. Uh, so you'd, you'd think, Jeff, wouldn't you, with these two incidents, people would be very aware, yet only a t- couple of shows ago, we covered that uh, fire engine that entered an mm. active runway and collided with an aircraft yep. takeoff and resulted in an appalling loss of life. And you go to yourself, well, if people aren't going to, uh, listen to the, the all the shouting that's happening there and saying, look, there, there are this is occurring. Make sure your airfield is up to snuff, that you've got all these situations covered, that you are following the advice being given to you. But it's obviously not happening. So what do we do? I don't understand how to fix this. You know, I don't know. <laughs> obviously, compliance with regulatory authorities doesn't really well that would be great wouldn't it, it would i mean be great. there must be i mean eventually be you end up with situations where countries that their safety um systems are so poor and they pay lip service to this sort of thing until uh, the international community downgrade their safety levels and airlines are prohibited from flying there 
or yep. their aircraft are prohibited from flying in airspace like European airspace or American airspace because of their lack of safety culture, uh, their poor safety culture. So, you know, that's that's a pretty heavy um, uh, hammer to hit them with, but you need something to make them wake up because it seems that they're not capable of looking after these things themselves. And that's something that has been used in the past many times for countries that don't have their you know, their stuff together. And yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. But I, it does worry me. It does worry because we we see it because we're picking these. Uh, right. Liz is doing a great job of picking these incidents, but we can't be the only people in the world that's doing this. They've got to be, you know, safety organisations in ICAO and the FAA and the CAA and the here in the UK and other countries who are going, you know, there's a real trend here. Why aren't we stamping on this? Why aren't we encouraging these countries to really look at their procedures and threatening them with sanctions if they're not going to bring themselves up to a decent standard? Exactly. It's a good worries question. Me. It is. Yeah, it worries me too. Okay. Um, let's continue. With the next item in the news from Aviation Herald again, uh, number or O1H, uh, uh, a Dana, D A N A. Uh, oh, Dana. Dana's Dana. flying. <laughs> he's flying in minute. Nigeria now. Yeah, let's Love see. Dana. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we haven't heard from him in a while, so now we know why. Um, a Dornier uh, Aviation Nigeria AIEP Dornier DO 328 100. <laughs> yeah. A registration 5 November Delta Oscar X-ray. Docs. Very good. Docs. Performing flight uh, 462 from Bonnie to Port Harcourt. You've been there, right, Nick? Oh, yes. I, yeah. Captain's only landing. Nigeria with 12. Was that the place where the guy was running in, in uh, across oh, the no, runway in was, front of him? Uh, no, that was uh, Lagos. Oh, <laughs> Did okay. that. No, Port Harcourt had a few other problems. Ah. Like their power used to go out and you'd oh, lose sure. all your runway lights on nice. the approach. <laughs> Who needs those stinking runway lights? At <laughs> exactly. uh, let's see. This thing had 12 passengers and four crew was on final approach to Port Harcourt's runway 22. Winds uh, 250 degrees at six knots. Runway was wet about six nautical miles before touchdown. When both power levers were at flight idle, the torque of the left-hand engine indicated 24, the right-hand engine, however, 20. The aircraft continued for a touchdown to the right of the runway center line. After the power levers were placed into the ground idle position, the crew observed the left engine's torque at 27% and the right engine's torque at below 10%. After touchdown... The captain took control of the aircraft. The aircraft veered further right to the runway edge and could not be controlled. In an attempt to stop the aircraft, the first officer set the emergency brakes, put the condition levers to minimum and feather position. The aircraft went beyond the right runway shoulder, 1,190 meters, 3,900 feet down the runway. The number four tire impacted a runway edge light while the aircraft traveled along the runway shoulder. The aircraft went over grass about 105 meters further down the runway, entered the apron. <laughs> Hello, we're here. Uh, entered the apron after rolling on grass for 259 meters, came to a stop three meters short of the airport perimeter fence at the aero contractor's ramp. No injuries occurred. The aircraft sustained minor damage. The Nigeria's Accident Investigation Bureau rated the occurrence a serious incident. And they opened a an investigation and released their preliminary report in 2019. 
I think we must have a final report. I'm going to scroll down here. No, I guess we don't. So we're just talking about the preliminary report here, Liz, I guess, I on this. So. I, sorry, I... No, minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just skipped the part where it says they're uh, issuing a, a final report now. Okay, so on the 30th of December, uh, the final report was released. Uh, the probable causes of the serious incident were asymmetrical propeller torque experienced on ground during landing roll due to propeller control unit PCU failure in flight. Uh, contributing contributory factor non-recognition of the prevailing torque oscillation malfunction non-execution of the proper checklist excessive rudder application of minus 30 degrees after landing so i think that means 30 degrees left uh, the crew were certified medically fit the aircraft documents and records available the uh, show the aircraft was certified and maintained um, the analysis focuses, focuses on the crew action during approach and landing phases of the flight, use of checklist, standard operating procedures, evaluation of the tire marks, tire cracks, and the propeller control unit. Uh, let's see, about six nautical miles prior to touchdown, the crew reported runway in sight. The ATC reported the prevailing wind at 250 degrees at six and runway 22 in use for landing. Uh, according to the crew statement, it was observed at short finals and with the power levers at flight idle position, the torque on engine number one and engine number two indicated 24. Okay, we talked about that before. However, the crew did not disclose any checklist action taken at the time of noticing this disparity in indication, which should have called for left or right prop low pitch, abnormal number 9-10, condition PCU detected low pitch condition, blade angle below F. I or F1, no, that's car racing, and severe torque oscillations checklist. Uh, this disparity in engine torque, according to the flight data recorder, had occurred at 6,000 feet, which became more pronounced at touchdown, to a value of 300% disparity. However, from the crew statement, these values were missed. Because they missed the true nature of the problem, they were not able to execute the correct checklist to arrest the situation. The crew action to continue the approach under a normal landing checklist instead of the abnormal 9-10 checklist was inappropriate. The crew should have discontinued the approach and pick a hold over the station to execute the applicable checklist before coming in to land. Pilot's radio communication with ATC was not standard. He reported that he was right base of left base of runway 22. <laughs> What? <laughs> now, I, I, I don't do a lot of visual circuits and never did in my civil career, but I don't quite understand what a right base and left base is. Well, I do a lot of visual approaches, and I don't know what that means either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, while he was not at the airport circuit altitude, which did not convey his exact position, the investigation revealed certain lapses in crew adherence to checklist application and SOP compliance in this flight. Um, so the entire track showed that the aircraft landed right at the runway center line and veered further right into the grass verge. This indicates the effect of propeller torque asymmetry coupled with excessive rudder input of minus 30 as revealed by the FDR plots, especially after touchdown, which the crew were unable to arrest. The investigation believed that there was a delayed application of emergency brakes considering the distance traveled by the aircraft before it finally stopped. Uh, yeah, so in other words, uh, there was something wrong. They didn't identify what was wrong. 
They continued with normal operations, normal checklists, did not refer to any abnormal bad checklists. Bad communication. And yeah, bad communication for sure. Um, and uh, you know, this, this, a lot of this has gone over my head, Jeff, yeah, because me too. I'm just, I'm just, I haven't got experience in this type of aircraft. So if there is someone out there who can do a, a Miami rake, uh, but slightly abbreviated perhaps, uh, yeah. and explain to us what this was, how easy it is to spot in layman's terms, mm -hmm. and um, how culpable the crew is, I'd be interested to know. So. I would too, because I feel the same way, Nick, because a lot of these uh, things that I just read I were like going completely over my head. I don't know anything about uh, turboprop uh, engines and propeller control units yeah. and all that kind we of stuff. It'd be great what, one for someone to help us out with a bit of feedback, please. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. That's what happened there. But it sounds to me like they made a pretty lousy job of uh, an emergency situation. So yeah. what can I say? Uh, that's about all you can say. That's what I would say. All right. Um, this is an interesting one. I'm oh, yeah, I saw up the this. Video. this. And yeah. uh, it was uh, something you don't really want to see. No. Uh, or at least I don't. I don't think anybody else would either. But uh, let me see here. Okay, so I guess I may need to set this up before we Fair play enough, the yeah. video. Okay. Um, battery smoke in cabin can be dangerous. And we're about to play a video of a Lufthansa flight, flight level 350. Uh, a Lufthansa 747-8 aircraft, Delta Alpha Bravo Yankee Juliet, diverted to Chicago after a passenger laptop caught fire midair while performing flight 457 from Los Angeles to Frankfurt on my birthday, 26 December. Oh, that's what, why it caught fire. Uh, there were fireworks all the birthday, birthday messages. Birthday. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so here, here we go. I'm going to play the video, and uh, it is quite amazing, actually. Here we go. Um, Look at the smoke. Wow. Yeah, so opens a bin, and it's almost like like a special effects kind of smoke that you'd see at a rock concert on a, on the stage. Here we go. We're going to loop it around again. And she opens the bin and it just like pours out this very thick, dark gray smoke, um, which would be very concerning. And I can see why flight attendants were treated for smoke inhalation, especially the one right there that's yeah, right opening there. up well, the uh, bin. She did have a mask. She did have a mask on. Yes. Now, I, I saw um, people commenting, saying, criticizing the crew, saying that what well, they should have had all their safety equipment on, but I suspect they're just taking a first look mm -hmm. at what someone said, all my the overhead thing's getting a bit warm, perhaps, or whatever. So they're taking a look in there just to see what the problem is. And of course, they introduce some fresh air in there, and this battery fire just takes off. Uh, so, yes, having established that there's a serious fire, then you go and get your safety equipment. You don't you don't put that on, uh, you know, all, all the uh, head smoke hoods and fire extinguishers, et cetera, until you know what the situation is. And of course, otherwise you just terrify all the passengers, perhaps needlessly. So uh, I, I didn't agree with that criticism. Uh, and we didn't see what happened afterwards. And no doubt... They did their very well-trained drill, and I know for a fact that Lufthansa, uh, much as we like to make fun of them, uh, are an incredibly well-disciplined 
airline who have fantastic crew training, both pilots and cabin crew, uh, and they would have dealt with that situation very well. I also saw some pretty stupid comments from people who don't know how to deal with uh, this kind of an incident uh, on an aircraft. Now, I can't speak for other airlines, but um, we're talking now three or four years before I retired. So seven or eight years ago, we had already established um, uh, onboard special fireproof bags that would take a laptop or similar device so that if we one occurred on the uh, air, on the aircraft, the cabin crew could isolate the item, not take the battery out and stick it in a sink, as I saw some bright sparks suggest, but take the entire laptop out, put it in a safe bag, which sealed up, and then they had a sort of a funnel where they could pour water onto it, which is essential, because the only thing you can do with one of these uncontained battery fires uh, is to cool it down uh, using, it's very simple, you use water, um, despite the fact it's an electrical device. That is the approved method. Uh, and this bag, and once you've filled it full of water, uh, then becomes a very safe environment to let the thing cool down. Um, so uh, most airlines have these bags, and uh, you know they're very aware of the dangers of having uh, lithium-ion battery-powered devices on their aircraft. So um, I'm no doubt that uh, Lufty dealt with this extremely well, which you don't necessarily get from all the news uh, um, comments on it. So true. You know, I really wish there was somebody that we could refer um, that had knowledge of it's handling a situation. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. Uh, I think we might have somebody right here, ah, right next to me here in, uh, in the hotel studio. Go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah, that was, <clears throat> sorry, that was shocking. Um, I almost would want to look at it again to see how much smoke was coming out of the bin before they opened it, because knowing that there would be a hot item in there, I'm just looking and trying to crane, like, I'm trying to see closer um, if she has her gloves on, because there's gloves to handle those things. And and if if there was enough smoke coming out of the bin to begin with to warrant that she should have had her breathing protective breathing equipment on, um, I mean I wasn't there, so I'm not going to criticize, and I hope I'm never there. But something, yeah, if I'd seen smoke coming out, I would have had things in hand, like emergency equipment in hand, and that's just me because I'm sole, I'm sole cabin crew. But, um, yeah, it just looks a little, I don't want to be critical, cause, but it looks a little disorganized. Like they didn't oh, come, come to We're the bin prepared. It looks like they didn't go to the bin prepared, but maybe there wasn't smoke coming out first. I just really, I can't tell from the video, but if I'd seen smoke, I would have had three key pieces of equipment with me. Well, the lithium ion containment ba bag kit contains the gloves i believe the fireproof gloves um i would have had a smoke helmet and i would have had a fire extinguisher um and then proceeded with the procedures from then but yeah that's tim van ram has a solution here jeff tim van ram says take the laptop and place it in the bag then deploy it in the sonar buoy chute 
Gosh darn it, I wish they had thought of that. <laughs> Very or, good, or too. Or another one from yeah. Neil. Oh, Neil Lanwarm, uh, Nev would just pop it in the champagne bucket, which is always right next to his uh, seat yes, 1A. Uh, yeah. Um, or, you know what I would do? I'd just open up the door and just throw it out. You know? What's, what's so hard about that? <laughs> Don't think I haven't thought about these things. I'm an well, overthinker. Sure I've thought, isn't there a way we could just slip a few of these things out into the atmosphere? But yeah. then again, it would hit an engine and that would be a worse problem. So I'm I down. would probably hit some poor civilian standing on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I want to do that. Heap of trouble I was there. walking along and this flaming great laptop hit me on the head. <laughs> but I, I happen to uh, agree, Rebecca, had they... If this wasn't perhaps their first, oh, uh, someone says there might be some smoke coming from this bin. Let's open it and take a look. Uh, if they knew it was a fire, I agree. They should have gone in fully equipped. Um, but I'm not sure that, that was perhaps the situation. I have a feeling they were just taking a first quick uh, shifty at the, <laughs> at the bin to see what was going on inside. And they weren't quite expecting such a violent um amount of smoke and There's probably smoke. fire to le <laughs> leap out at them. They probably got a bit of a shock there. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting a nod of, of uh, acknowledgement. I wasn't there. Yeah. Can't say. I know. But as I said, we're never here for any of these things, thankfully. And uh, that doesn't keep us from saying what we think. Exactly. <laughs> the APG Accident Investigation Team. Yes, the APG Accident Investigation Team, for sure. Oh, we got several of those. Yep. We're on call 24-7, you know. I know. We have our own go team. Our own go team, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go. Get out of here. Yeah, leave. Yeah. All right. Um, We've got to go down the pub team. Yeah. Oh, that sounds good to me. Um, maybe we should just end the show. And I head down to the pub. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let me remove this from the studio because I need to load up one more video file here for the next news item. And uh, another tragic accident, uh, this one occurring in Australia. And uh, let me add this to the stream and we'll play that while I'm talking about it. Uh, the next item from bbc.co.uk four people have died after a mid-air collision between two helicopters near SeaWorld on Australia's Gold Coast. Queensland police say initial investigations suggest the crash happened as one aircraft was taking off and the other was landing. Those who died were traveling in the same helicopter. Three other passengers are in critical condition. Two UK citizens were among those killed in the crash. A foreign um, office spokesperson told the BBC. They added that officials were supporting the families of the two victims who had not been named and would remain in contact, in contact with the local authorities. Five of the six people on the other aircraft, which made an emergency landing, suffered minor injuries. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said the country had been left shocked by the terrible and tragic incident. Uh, my thoughts are with all those affected, including first responders, and my deepest sympathies are with those who are grieving. I would imagine the first responders probably the the, the scene must have been just horrific. Um, let's see. The uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau, ATSB, is investigating the collision, which happened about 2 o'clock local time in the afternoon. 
The two aircraft came down near a tourist strip known as Main Beach, about 75 kilometers south of Brisbane. Uh, it's a difficult scene, uh, according to Gary Worrell of the uh, Queensland Police Service. It's a difficult scene due to the area it's located on the sandbank. It was difficult to gain access to get our emergency services to the scene to manage it, manage it appropriately. Uh, images from the site show debris strewn around the area and a mangled helicopter apparently lying upside down opposite the SeaWorld Resort. The other helicopter has the popular Marine Parks logo on its fuselage and appears to have made an emergency landing after the collision. Um, yeah, members of the public and the police had tried to remove passengers from the aircraft and performed first aid on the injured. Uh, so, yeah, what a tragedy. Um, and uh, I that's all we know now about this. I don't know. How would it happen, you know, if it just wasn't proper clearing or Looks miscommunication? Like weather. Weather, weather was nice. Yeah, I, I don't know. Daylight. I doubt very much there was any um, actual control at this place. It was probably just a visual flight rules landing spot. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have seen one other piece of video, which I happened to spot, uh, and I didn't uh, think to give you a link to it because i assumed you had it all but it was from inside uh the helicopter oh. which did not suffer any fatalities and it was a piece of film taken by one of the passengers wow. and it's just as you imagine they're sitting on a lovely pleasure flight uh, panning around with happy excited uh um holiday makers sitting in the back of this helicopter and uh, one of the guys in the back reaches over and taps the pilot and he's pointing at what he has seen uh, the, the other helicopter and uh, before the pilot can look back to see which way he's pointed uh, the front of the helicopter explodes uh, as um, the the canopy is shattered by the blades of the mm. Uh, the other helicopter. So, I mean, that's all you see. So, um, you know, uh, wow. that's the helicopter, I believe, where everyone survived. Uh, and it was uh, the other machine that, uh, due to the damage, presumably, to the blades that actually crashed and the tragedy happened. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, it's just one of those things. You can see this fantastic scene, everyone having a wonderful time, making approach down towards this spit of sand, and all of a sudden, their world explodes around them. Wow. All right. Yeah, I wish I had that uh, that video. Oh, well. well. Maybe if we find it and we think about it, we'll put it in the show notes and you can see that I'll as well. I'll find it. Okay. Thank you, Liz. All right. And finally, last item in the news. Uh, two, this is also from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Two passenger aircraft hit by New Year's celebratory gunfire at Beirut's main <laughs> airport. Again. Not again. Yeah, again. <laughs> no. uh, two parked passenger aircraft. <coughs> Excuse me. Two parked passenger aircraft at Beirut's Rafik Hari, Hariri, <laughs> I don't know, International Airport, have been hit by stray bullets from celebratory gunfire to mark the new year. The aircraft, belonging to Middle East Airlines, MEA, did not have any passengers or crew on board at the time of the incident on Sunday morning. The two aircraft are understood to be almost brand new Airbus A321neo aircraft. 
Ouch. One aircraft. I know. One aircraft could is. You, could you shoot at the old ones, please? I guess. Yeah, if they were aiming, maybe. But they're just <laughs> firing their weapons up in the air. You know, haphazard, haphazardly. Yeah. One aircraft is less than two year two years old, while the other has been flown by the new airline from when it was built and delivered in July 2020, which would make it yeah. Almost, well, more than two years old. According to local media, the aircraft have been towed to a hangar where they will undergo repairs. They should have been in the hangar, and then they wouldn't have been damaged. <laughs> they would have been safe. Yeah. The damage, which appears to have to be several very distinctive bullet holes in the fuselage of the aircraft, is not understood to be serious. I would think it would be serious, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, anyway. I don't know. Yeah, I'd have thought so, but. Perhaps you can just put a bit of, um, you know, sticky tape. tape over it. And, yeah, speed tape over it. Pardon me? Yeah. It'll uh, be fine. Uh, I was going to say celebrity shooting, uh, no, celebratory shooting into the <laughs> air, uh, or maybe both, is commonplace across Lebanon, especially at weddings and funerals, as well as New Year's Eve. Um, let's see. MEA Chairman Mohammed Al-Hout says damage caused by stray bullets around Beirut Airport is so commonplace that as many as eight parked aircraft were struck by negligent gunfire in 2021. In November <laughs> 28, in just 2021. In November 22, the worrying phenomenon came to prominence when an MEA plane on final approach to Beirut Airport, Airport was struck by a stray bullet which pierced a hole in the main passenger cabin and penetrated an overhead bin. And we talked about that on a previous show. Uh, none of the passengers or crew on that short 40-minute flight from Amman, Jordan, were injured. Um, following Good the job incident, that overhead bin didn't contain a laptop computer. Oh, yeah. Ooh, a double <laughs> whammy. <laughs> following the incident, lawmakers demanded action to be taken to stop people firing into air around the airport. <laughs> okay. Any volunteers? Yeah, well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. All right. That is it for our news today and uh, that means you know what that means it's time for my favorite segment of the show which is getting to know us that time where we get all caught up with what's been happening with the crew well at least the crew that's here <laughs> um oh yeah we can also kind of give an update on uh, some absent crew members as well uh but uh, nick would you like to start us out uh, yeah, uh, quite uh, very happy to. Uh, let me see what has happened uh, over the week, uh, and I'm pr probably going to say not a lot. Um, I'm not either. You a link to that. Uh, New Year was very quiet. Uh, we didn't do very much. Um, we have had a uh, you know life quietly getting back to normal as we bring down the Christmas decorations and. Um, you know, uh, every, after Christmas, everything's a bit quiet. Throw, throwing away all the food we didn't manage to eat. <laughs> um, off to have uh, meet up with Captain uh, Nige, uh, who we all know, the uh, awful um, Hong Kong fooey man, and his lovely wife, uh, who we've known for many, many years, uh, over the weekend. That, I'm looking forward to that. Um and uh, let me see what else there might be. Uh, nope, nothing else at all. So that's it from me, really. Uh, just started the new year and, um, you, know, uh, you know, looking forward to a decent 2023. Fingers how's crossed. Doing? How's, how's Ada doing? 
Uh, Zayda is doing very nicely, actually. She's uh, she has her very calm moments, which is nice, and she's very playful uh, at other times, which is also lovely. And uh, she is slowly settling into our lifestyle, which uh, I think is great. So, yeah, she's going to be a really good um, member of the family, that's for sure. Would Nick like to talk about the cover art while he's chatting? While we are chatting with you, um, why don't we jump over to the cover art from the last show? And uh, why is it not? There it is. Beautiful. I mean, it's a, another work of art. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> a ma- it is a masterpiece. Yeah, it just uh, it, it's so many facets uh, to talk about here. So why don't you tell us what's going on? Well, I, I opted for the simple option, which was the Happy New Year. Uh, so thanks for letting me do that. Now, it was all centered around this uh, lovely old um, masterpiece, uh, which depicts old father time. Uh, and he has um, got a pair of wings, as you would expect from an airline pilot, and he's flying off into uh, the distance with a scythe, because apparently old Father Time has a scythe, a bit like death, I guess, uh, hmm. and uh, he's grasping the leg of a baby, which is hanging upside down and not looking very comfortable being dragged through the air, and that's uh, that represents Baby New Year, apparently. Uh, and of course, all I had to do was to substitute a few faces. <laughs> yeah, that baby has a beard. Um, yes, that baby has disturbing. a black beard. Um, and and I, I used the youngest member of the ABG crew uh-huh. uh, and put his face there on uh, Baby uh, New Year. <laughs> And I took the oldest member of the crew and put his face over old father. Which is yours, yes. There you go. So that that was good. We've got a few fireworks going off in the background, including a lovely timepiece, which has uh, the Acme logo on, uh, as does uh, the year 2023. And then there's just lots of champagne and stuff celebrating uh, New yeah, the Year, time, so. the time, and then the clock. It almost looks like a, a Playboy bunny <laughs> if you <laughs> kind of just glance at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. There you go. That yeah, that's hmm. brilliant. So no, I, I uh, that was a relatively simple one for me. So uh, oh, it was really nice. Though. I enjoyed doing that. Beautiful, beautiful colors. Lots of gold and gilded frames and nice stuff. stuff. Yeah, good celebration. Yeah. Luckily, it's a, it's a subject that there's lots of um, art available out there. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, I'll uh, jump in with uh, myself. I picked up a green slip um, today, um, I believe. I think that's the only thing I did over this time or did i fly another trip i don't know i'm losing track of time i, I guess yes, i should you did a turn to Asheville. yeah i did an Asheville turn. oh that's right i did do that okay an Asheville turn after we did the um uh show thursday, recording last thursday i did that on friday and then on uh i thought i would be flying over um new year's eve and you know get a nice th- long green slip trip but uh, they kept breaking these longer trips into smaller little bits and pieces if they just called me up and asked if I was willing to fly a longer trip um, for double pay, I would have said, of course, but they didn't ask. And uh, so finally I gave up. And on uh, January 1st and 2nd, I flew a two-day um, 
green slip trip, uh, three legs uh, the first day and one. Uh, no, actually one leg the first day and then three on the uh, second day. And so I, I looked at the weather as I always do before I, you know, acknowledge a trip or, or, or request a trip pickup. And I didn't see any thunderstorm activity, but I didn't think about the fact that this time of year, especially in the southern United States, southeast, um, well, actually a lot of different places around mm-hmm. the country and the world, yeah. uh, you get, um, you know, stable air and uh, you get uh, fog. Moisture. And yeah, moisture and uh, drizzly, foggy, low visibility stuff. And uh, so I, the first day going from Atlanta to uh, Tallahassee, just barely saw what I needed to see uh, at the very last second before uttering, you know, go around, missed approach, whatever. Um, uh, category two approach into Tallahassee. So we got that thing on the ground. And then the next day, um, we flew from Tallahassee. It's still a little bit foggy, but not too bad in the morning and flew up to Atlanta. Um, not great weather, but it wasn't, you know, category uh, two, category three weather. And then we noticed our flight to Fort Walton Beach, uh, Destin Eglin Air Force Base, actually, was delayed for a while. And we're going, what's going on here? It must be some kind of equipment issue or whatever. Again, not thinking about the fact that the weather could be an issue. And then I started to look at that and went, uh, so Eglin Air Force Base, it's one of those joint use uh, airports. So that's, you know, we fly airline traffic in there as well. And uh, they only have a category one instrument approach landing system set up. And when the weather is one quarter mile visibility and uh, uh, 100 feet, uh, as far as vertical visibility is concerned, uh, it's tough. To, uh, to get in. Uh, the airplane, the, one of the last flights that they before uh, tried to get in, and uh, because of the low vis and uh, somewhat high um, approach minimums, uh, did not make it in and had to divert back to Atlanta. So they tried it again before our effort or attempt. And uh, so it was nice because we were looking at them on flight radar 24 and could see them in real time. And they were down there north of the air, the airport uh, circling and waiting for the weather to improve. And after about six or seven circuits, they decided to, at first I thought, oh, good, looks like they're going to go down there and actually try and approach. Nope, they uh, diverted to uh, Panama City. And so we were still in Atlanta, thankfully, uh, not having pushed back from the gate and said, uh, you know, to the passengers, yeah, well, that didn't work for them, so we're not going to go yet because we're not confident that we're going to be able to make it in at this time. And we waited a little bit longer, and then all of a sudden the meteorological reports were showing some improvement. So we decided, let's go ahead and give this a shot. So we went down there, and uh, again, another deja vu, like just at the very last second, saw uh, the approach lighting system. And uh, you know, I called out approach lights in sight, continue. And then we saw the runway, and then we landed. And uh, you and know, you beat those the, other guys in. Yeah, we beat the uh, the crew that tried the day before. Well, not the crew, but the airplane, the flight that tried the day before, and then the crew that were uh, giving it an attempt before we did. Um, we beat them um, into uh, uh, Fort Walton Beach before they uh, were able to get uh, and from Panama you City and. An- Air traffic issue in Florida. You yeah, that's that, another yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, Liz is talking about the uh, air traffic control issue in some parts of Florida, uh, some kind of a computer issue or something. I'm not yeah. sure exactly what was going on there, but 
yeah, we were not affected by that. I would think by the time that happened, we were already in the air and already in yeah. Atlanta's airspace. So uh, thankfully, we uh, dodged that bullet. But anyway, so it was a little bit longer trip than I thought it was going to be. But, um, you know, got home safely in Atlanta and then pretty nasty weather the next couple of days. Um, very stormy, rainy, thunderstorm, lightnings, uh, lightnings, lightning and uh, tornado watch, tornado watch. And uh, there was a tornado, I think, that was actually confirmed uh, south of Atlanta down near uh, where uh, uh, dispatcher Mike? Mike lives. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so some nasty weather, um, but uh, that's it. Um, got this is my uh, first normally or regularly scheduled trip for January, and uh, I'm with my favorite first officer Brent, and he's in the room next door, and uh, so we're having a good time uh, so far on the trip, um, and uh, yeah, that is. All I have to report. Did you want to show some pictures from Steffi? I do want to show some pictures from Steph that she sent us. Uh, She uh, asks for your forgiveness for not being able to make it to the show, but she just had a last-minute item put on her schedule, a dinner obligation. And uh, let me get over here to this, and I can uh, share. All right. Now, this looks like one of their... Jump airplanes? Is that the yeah. caravan? Yeah. No. I think it, it? looks Maybe. bigger than a 182. Maybe it was a 182. I don't know. I can't tell. Yeah, she's having fun. I think I think she said it was the caravan, but I yeah. wouldn't be able to recognize it from the picture, I'm afraid. I'm not that good. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either, but I think it's a caravan. And then let's uh, do the next one. There we go. That's Steph jumping out. This is definitely the 182 here. Uh, jumping out of the uh, 182. Looks like she's having fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what Steph's doing. That's why she's not here, apparently. Having too much fun. How could she abandon mm. us and have fun on her own? It's really not fair. It is not fair. No. All right. So that's uh, your update on Stephanie. And uh, we miss you, Steph. Too bad you couldn't make it. Uh, maybe next time. All right. Coffee fun time. Coffee fun time. Okay. Well, then that means I can go over here and play this. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. This lady, she's a trained singer. All right. I should have her sing the whole time that I'm doing this. Okay, the coffee fund is your way to support the show financially. And a couple different ways to do that. One is the coffee fund classic method. And... Since the last show, we have our recurring coffee fund, original, uh, traditional, classic coffee fund contributors, but uh, no new one-offs or whatever. So we're going to move on to the other way that you can support the show financially, and that is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And we do have a new producer, Bill Metzger. Thank you, Bill, for joining this August group of financial supporters. 
Um, so if you're interested in also being with this fine group of folks, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee and uh, you'll find information on how you can do the, the one-off thing for the uh, original Coffee Fund Classic or become a patron of the show via Patreon. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Captain, incoming message. Okay, we're going to start with some feedback from David. He says, good evening, all. A bit on the Bangor diversion you, Bangor, I should say, diversion you mentioned in this week's podcast. I followed this as the scheduled flight was Doncaster, Sheffield to Melbourne, Florida. I had noticed some grumpiness on social media from the diverted passengers. It seems while the captain knew he was heading to a hotel, <laughs> it took six hours for the passengers to be told, or oh maybe boy. for the airline to find the rooms. Yeah, that's probably likely the case. Some <laughs> The captain had to get his hotel room before anybody else did, right? Uh, some of the complaints were a little unrealistic, complaining that the airline had no staff in the airport and such like. Well, yeah. <laughs> Why would T- TUI um, have staff at an airport that they don't normally fly into? <laughs> Come on. Uh, it does occur to me that these diversions into relatively remote airports, which they do not normally operate from, must be a huge challenge to manage. Do the crew get involved or are they just off to the hotel, etc.? Uh, I'll I'll pause and try to answer that one. Sometimes, as much as you want to help, you end up getting in the way more than anything else. You don't have a lot of information about uh, the local airport or their local procedures. You don't have any idea of what the availability is of hotels or bus transportation or all this kind of stuff. And I think usually the best the best thing for the crew to do is just to get out of the way, let the people that are trained to handle this type of situation handle the situation. And if it looks like the passengers are getting irate, then try to make a nice, easy or quick exit. Uh, hopefully nobody noticing. <laughs> just get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, anyway, going on with um, uh, David's feedback. In this case, a non-broken first officer, <laughs> one that wasn't um, incapacitated. Uh, incapacitated because of the uh, food um, sickness. What do you call it? Food poisoning. Food poisoning. Um, was dropped off the next day by diverting the Birmingham to Melbourne flight. Again, more disruption, although it seemed to only delay that flight uh, one hour and 20 minutes. Between the diverted flight and its return, the holiday company had to find hotel rooms for 564 people, plus crew. The cost of this must be huge, and one starts to appreciate the ticket prices. And is Micah still with us here in the uh, live audience? Uh, I would seen have, him for a while. May, I would imagine that Bangor is just up the road from uh, Portland. Uh, I wouldn't imagine there would be a heck of a lot of uh, rooms available Um Maybe this time of year. Well, not at this, I was just going to say, not at this time of year, for sure. Yeah. Like, a lot of places are closed. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, um, as an aside, Doncaster Sheffield was the UK's best-rated airport, and my office had a great view of final approaches from the north. This was one of the last long-haul flights from the airport, which has sadly been closed by its owner, who hoped to eventually redevelop it. There is consider- 
considerable protest against the plans, but key is the lack of any coordinated government strategy in connection with regional airports. Should Pip be listening, Pip's first experience of his latest jet was at the airport. Uh, Pip's gone to bed. Oh, well. He claims the plane is quiet. I remember his touch and goes. Quiet, they were not. Mm -hmm. I think he means it's quiet from... The position inside the aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> Not outside. You don't hear all that boing, boing, boing <laughs> as it bounces down the runway. Oh, I think we do have a recording of uh, of that uh, somewhere here. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pip space training. Very good. <laughs> Uh, anyway, as ever, thanks for the podcast. Best wishes to all. Kind regards, David. Yeah, as I mentioned... That's a that's a little prickly situation when you know you you are somewhere where you had not expected to be or uh, someplace that the passengers had not uh, you know expected they didn't pay to be uh, to go from the UK to uh, Bangor, Maine. They expected to go all the way down to Melbourne, Florida. Um, but sometimes these things happen, and uh, you can't get you know too unreasonable about you know complaining about. The fact that there's no staff, you know, airline staff at this particular airport. I mean, that they just got to – it was a medical emergency. They had to get the guy on the ground, and uh, this is what you got to do. I mean, same thing if it had been a passenger with a heart attack or something. You know, it, it would have been yeah. – uh, it was just a major inconvenience and a huge expense for the uh, airline and a major inconvenience and possible expense for the uh, passengers as well. I mean, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there are handling agents at most of these airports which uh, are trained to deal with this. Uh, so it's a bit like they're not wearing your company uniforms, but they should be able to, to handle it. But some airports obviously are better equipped than others. And sometimes the day, there's just nobody there to uh, to handle the aircraft if it's an unexpected diversion. And some of these can be an absolute disaster. Uh, I was... Lucky in that I had relatively few diversions in my career. Um, but, you know, I always tried to make sure that somebody was looking after the passengers, that they weren't just completely being uh, ignored. Um, but, uh, you know, people are upset and sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're not going to please everybody. So uh, it's a tough job. Yep, it is. Well, thank you, David, for your feedback, and uh, sorry about uh, the Doncaster-Sheffield Airport. Have you been there, Nick? Uh, Donnie, yeah, I think so. I've flown around that area. I've never actually flown into that airport, I don't think. Mm. It probably was uh, – is that the one that was Finningley? Uh, probably it was an XRAF airfield. Don't know for sure. I doubt it. Perhaps I've made a mistake. There's someone will correct me. I have a fe feeling Finningley was Robin Hood Airport, uh, which I have flown to, but I don't think I've flown to that one. According to George uh, Puttock in the uh, live audience, such a shame about Doncaster with the Vulcan now trapped there. Uh, he said that uh, oh, wow. the Vulcan taking off from Doncaster being the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life, bar none, but it was great. <laughs> Yeah, well, trapped there, it can't fly anyway. So yeah. uh, the fact that the airport's closed is a bit irrelevant, really. I guess. But yeah. very sad, of course. All right. Well, uh, Sam uh, Bolog sent us um, the next piece of feedback. 
on episode 355, wow, that's going back a, a bit, uh, Captain Nick explained the purpose of fuse plugs. Are the tires that have been deflated reusable? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Good question, Sam. I don't know. Uh, and uh, I wasn't sure, so I uh, did a bit of digging around. And um, there are... Uh, Aircraft tires, a bit like lorry tires and very expensive tires for large machinery, you know, the mining equipment, that sort of thing, uh, are frequently um, reused and they uh, strip off and reapply an outer uh, surface there so, to allow them to be recycled. Um, so there are a few occasions when a tire won't be, and, and they're, they're pretty expensive bits of kit, as you can imagine, because the stresses they have to take are enormous. Uh, so they're, they're highly technical. I, I was quite surprised when I saw the breakdown of these two types of uh, tires, one of which uh, is a radial and the other is... Um, Oh, I forget the name of that one. Uh, never mind. Bias ply. Uh, it's got a funny name. Bias ply. Yeah, the, yeah, bias ply. Thank you. And I was going, oh, I don't know anything about that because I don't know much about the construction of these things. But there is, I find it quite interesting. But um, it depends uh, what sort of a situation that uh, you're taking them off the aircraft. So uh, a normal braking energy tire that has been subjected to an unusually high service braking or operating condition like you've rejected a high at high speed you've rejected a takeoff so you have you know performed uh, a, a very high speed abort and brought the aircraft to, to halt the, the tires and uh, the brakes going to be extremely hot there'd be a lot of uh, energy pushed into those tires um, or you've done a, um, a high-speed overweight landing. Um, th those tyres that have been subjected to that, they they they're, they're removed and scrapped. No, no worry about that. They're not even they don't even think about recycling them. Um, even if an, a, a visual inspection shows no apparent damage, the tyres uh, will probably have in, sustained internal structural damage um, and what's more the effective tires uh, are required to be clearly marked and documented by a serial number uh, with a description of the reason for removal and uh, return to a full service tire supplier and the reason for the documentation is so that accidentally a tire that has been possibly damaged by uh, an unusually high energy uh, braking situation uh, it shouldn't be put back into service. It shouldn't be um, uh, recovered. Um, tires that have deflated due to a fuse plug release are always removed and scrapped. Uh, if they've got to that sort of temperature that uh, has... Uh, and, and for those who were <laughs> listening to episode 355, just so you understand, um, when you get tires very hot, uh, there is a possibility that they will explode. So to prevent that happening, uh, the rim of the tyre has uh, got various uh, ports in it uh, which are filled with a metal that um, melts at a relatively low temperature. Uh, the sort of temperatures we're talking about when you do 
and aborted takeoff or rejected takeoff. And we're talking about temperatures of seven or eight or nine hundred degrees centigrade, even perhaps a thousand degrees centigrade. They're extremely hot. Um, so to prevent the tires from exploding, and of course, if you're in that situation, there will be people around the aircraft. So you're not just worried about the tires exploding, damaging your airplane. You're actually worried about the safety of fire personnel and other personnel that might be close. So um, these fuses uh, are designed to melt and deflate the tires before they get to the temperature at which they will explode. So that's the, what a fuse plug is. Now, if a tire has been through this process and the fuse plugs have melted and the tire has deflated, then that tire is automatically removed and scrapped. Now, um, if it's occurred during a dynamic rolling condition, the mate tire, i.e. the tire next door that may not have deflated, uh, will have been subjected to high-stress conditions. So imagine you've got a bogey of four tyres. Say the left two have the fuse plugs have blown and the tyres have uh, deflated. The right two will have been carrying all the weight and will also have been subjected to similar temperatures, but they just haven't uh, got quite hot enough to, to deflate. But they will have been in an incredibly high-stress situation. So they're also uh, removed. Um, if this has occurred in a static, non-rolling, in other words, the aircraft was stationary, and it sometimes happens that you do a rejected takeoff, you come to a halt, the tyres have yet to get to full temperature. Uh, the because all the temperature is being generated by the brakes and that has to be transmitted through to the hubs and into the tyres for them to get to full temperature. And you can watch it when you do, <laughs> do a landing where you've uh, used your brakes firmly. Uh, you can watch the temperatures go creeping up and up and up and up and you're thinking, oh my Lord, better get off the runway here in case the fuse plugs blow. Um, but it takes, you know, several minutes for them to get to, to the maximum temperature. So if you've, um, if it's occurred in a, a non-rolling condition, you may have taxi clear and come to a halt and then ask the fire guys to come and look at you to make sure you're safe to taxi in. Um, at that point, uh, the, you may get a few, a uh, few plugs blow so if the mate tire the one next door has been in a non-rolling condition then that tire does not have to be removed unless it fails to pass other aircraft maintenance manual or uh, applicable inspection criteria and uh, i'm gonna i've given jeff in the bottom of these uh the the things i'm talking about a link to the goodyear uh tire company and they have issued a um, um, leaflet which gives an awful lot of technical information if you're interested if you're a if you get <laughs> if you get a lot of joy reading about airplane tires and uh, if you're an engineer it might be might be quite useful um, other reasons uh, you might need to take the tires off well hard landings they obviously provide a lot of um, potential damage to the tires and uh, you'll have to consult with the uh, aircraft maintenance manual following a hard landing. Uh, and all the wheels are checked in accordance with the usual maintenance and overhaul uh, manuals to make sure that uh, they're fit to stay on the aircraft. And that's just a, you know, just a light over, 
brush of <laughs> whether you can take a tire off and have it uh, resurfaced, repaired, or whether you just have to throw it in a bin. And considering they're, you know, thousands of pounds each, um, then you obviously want to try and hang on to them if you can and get them, uh, uh, you know, retreaded. Excellent. I, yeah. I, I bet you didn't know that, and I didn't, that Captain Nick is the Miami Rick of aircraft tires. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I can claim to that, but uh, <laughs> I have learned a bit more about it. Well, so interesting questions. We have now as well. Yeah. And as you said, we'll have that link to that uh, Goodyear document uh, with all that good stuff and more in the show notes. Yeah. And I've also learned a bit about tire construction. Those uh, images of the different layers in uh, tires, I mean, they're, they're full, mainly, of course, it's just layers of rubber, but also mixed in with uh, high tensile steel, steel cables, uh, etc., that give it the strength. They are really quite remarkable um, inventions, uh, these aircraft tires. Uh, you know, it's quite a specialist um, thing to be able to make those. Yeah. All right. Well, it is... Uh Thank you for that, uh, Nick, and uh, hopefully that answered uh, Sam's question about uh, tires who have, that have uh, gone through uh, deflation due to fuse plugs. And uh, it's now time for our plain tale this episode, and uh, the uh, title, The Old Pilot's Plain Tale Crash Investigation, is No Accident. Ah, that's clever. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Crash investigation is no accident. It was the 13th of May 1912, a Monday, when a Flanders F3 monoplane took off from Brooklands in Surrey, a county of England. The grand site had opened five years earlier and was the world's first purpose-built banked motor racing circuit, as well as one of Britain's first airfields. The kidney-shaped track enclosed the grass area that the aircraft operated from, which was also bounded by the River Way, a narrow body of water that ran through the circuit towards Weybridge, where it would join Old Father Thames. As a boy, I had fished in that river pulling little sticklebacks out to watch them swim around in a jam jar before sending them back to their homes. The pilot of the Flanders F3 was the aviation pioneer Edward Victor Beauchamp Fischer and his passenger the American millionaire Victor Mason. Fischer had an aviator's certificate, the 77th to be issued, had learned to fly at Brooklands and was a flying instructor there. He had also worked with both A.V. Rowe, the founder of Avro, and Howard Flanders, whose monoplane he was flying at the time. The two men had made two or three circuits of the airfield at about 100 feet, the 60-horsepower green engine operating well, when... In a left turn, the aircraft fell to the ground, killing both the aviator and his passenger before catching a light and burning. In the early days of aviation, such accidents were fairly common, but what sets this one apart 
is that it was the first in history to become the subject of an accident investigation by an official civilian body, the Public Safety and Accidents Investigation Committee of the Royal Aero Club. Not to say that other investigations hadn't been done previously, such as Lieutenant Frank Lamb's ad hoc report on the world's first death in a powered flight crash. That had occurred in 1908, when Orville Wright had taken Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge up in a Wright Model A for a demonstration flight. At a speed of about 40 miles an hour, and an estimated altitude of between 100 and 150 feet, Wright had heard a light tapping behind him. He quickly turned around and saw nothing wrong, but, as he later wrote to his brother, soon felt two big thumps, which gave the machine a terrible shaking. The airplane corkscrewed right and pitched up, rocking like a ship in rough water, one observer recalled, then nosed almost straight down. About 25 feet from the ground, the airplane began easing out of the dive. A few feet more, Wright wrote, and we would have landed safely. The skids dug into the ground and the airplane crashed with frightful force, a newspaper reported. Wright was quickly pulled from the wreckage, dazed from the pain of broken bones, but it took several minutes to free the unconscious, bloody Selfridge. He died in surgery about three hours later, the victim of a skull fracture. Lamb interviewed about a dozen spectators who gave the impression of being reliable witnesses, including Octave Chanute, one of the foremost aviation theorists of the day. Several of them verified what Lamb himself had seen, a chunk from one of the propeller blades break off during flight and fall to the ground. Lamb found and examined the broken propeller and took precise measurements at the scene. Based on Wright's recollections and the physical evidence, Lamb's conclusion was that the broken propeller had caused damage that rendered the airplane uncontrollable. Lamb wrote in his report, issued on February 19, 1909, the clicking which Mr. Wright referred to being due to the propeller blade striking the wire lightly several times, when, the vibrations increasing, it struck it hard enough to pull it out of its socket and at the same time to break the propeller. Back at Brooklands, the Accident Investigation Committee had completed its first-ever report. They had taken evidence from witnesses, the designer and manufacturer of the aircraft, as well as representatives of the maker of the motor. They concluded that the aircraft had turned through about 90 degrees in the horizontal plane, that its side slipped inwards, that it struck the ground head first with the tail practically vertical, that the velocity at the moment of striking the ground was very considerable, that the fire was subsequent to the fall and did not cause the accident that there was no reason to suppose that a structural failure occurred, that the aircraft had been flying tail down, 
that the engine was running when the aircraft struck the ground, that Mr. Fisher was not incapacitated at the time, and that the passenger did not cause the accident. They concluded by stating that in the opinion of the committee, the cause of the accident was the aviator himself, who failed to sufficiently appreciate the dangerous conditions under which he was making the turn when flying tail down, and, in addition, not flying in a proper manner. A side-slip occurred, and Mr. Fisher lost control of his aircraft. It seemed probable that his losing control was caused by his being thrown forwards into the elevating gear, thereby moving this forward involuntarily, which would have had the effect of still further turning the aircraft down. Mr. Fisher was thrown, fell, or jumped out of the aircraft when the latter was at a considerable height from the ground, and was found some sixty feet in front of the wreckage. In the opinion of the committee, it is possible that if the aviator had been suitably strapped into his seat, he might have retained control of the aircraft. The Civilian Aero Club Safety Committee investigated both military and non-military accidents, and shortly after their formation they gained the power to order a police presence at crashes to preserve the evidence, as well as providing evidence to the coroner's office. By 1913 they'd moved to Farnborough, where they took over a building adjacent to the Swan Public House. They became part of the Aircraft Inspection Department, under the auspices of the War Office, who also laid down orders for the conduct of investigations, in that the Chief Inspector of Aeronautics was required to report to them. By 1915, the post had become exclusively one of crash investigation, as the Inspector of Accidents, a post that has remained unchanged to this very day. By now, the renamed Accident Investigation Department had moved to London, and by the end of the war, the title had become the Accidents Investigation Branch, a name that we recognise today. It was a fully independent civilian organisation. Orders were promulgated by the government to ensure that crash wreckage was to remain undisturbed until the arrival of an accident investigation team. This sometimes meant that airfields remained littered with wrecked aircraft until a team could be brought to investigate the accident. Records show that in the Royal Flying Corps, 8,000 personnel lost their lives in flying accidents not related to combat, leaving some flying fields looking more like junkyards than military airfields. Before the end of 1918, the reassembly of wreckage was already a tool used by investigators to establish causal factors, leading the way for future methods of finding out the reasons for accidents. The Accident Investigation Department had been tasked by the British Secretary of War to look into the preponderance of accidents which featured monoplanes. Despite the design of single-wing aircraft being exonerated, 
prejudice against them continued in the Royal Air Force right up to the Second World War, which accounted for an entire generation of slow biplane fighters entering service. These obsolete aircraft were slower than the bombers of the time, a ridiculous state of affairs. Finally, outdated thinking evolved to encourage the production of aircraft such as the Hurricane and Spitfire. 101 years ago, the British government issued the Air Navigation Regulations of 1922, formed pursuant under Section 12 of the Air Navigation Act of 1920. This formalised the organisation that had already existed and its standardised procedures. Accidents were first subjected to a preliminary investigation by the Inspector of Air Accidents, followed by a formal investigation carried out in court. Secondary proceedings were initially held in open courts, but became private in 1951, with only those reports the Secretary of State deemed necessary for publication made available to the public. Since then, public access to accident reports has been improved, and by 1969, all reports were made publicly available. Another interesting change that took place in the same year was the redefinition of the purpose of the board's investigations. The initial 1922 regulations allowed for a degree of blame to be ascribed, but now investigations are conducted with the primary purpose of avoiding future accidents. Despite some changes along the way, most of the initial principles have stayed the same reflecting the commitment then and now to improving aviation safety through accident investigation. Most countries typically have a team of investigators at their disposal to research air crashes that occur in their airspace or involve their aircraft. In the United States, this role is filled by the National Transport Safety Board, NTSB, while its neighbours to the north have the Transport Safety Board of Canada, the TSB. The NTSB dates back to 1926, when the United States Congress charged the US Department of Commerce with investigating the causes of aircraft accidents as part of the Air Commerce Act. That gave rise to the Civil Aeronautics Board's Bureau of Aviation Safety, which was created in 1940, that evolved into the NTSB following the consolidation of all transport agencies into the Department of Transportation. In 1974, it was recognised that the responsibilities of the Department of Transport, which affect safety, should be investigated by an independent organisation. As such, Congress established the NTSB as a completely separate entity outside the DOT, reasoning that no federal agency can perform properly such investigatory functions unless it is totally separate and independent from any other agency of the United States. Since its inception, the NTSB has investigated around 152,000 aviation accidents and thousands of surface transportation accidents. 
On call 24 hours a day every day of the year, NTSB investigators travel throughout the country and to every corner of the world to investigate significant accidents and develop factual records and safety recommendations with one aim, to ensure that such accidents never happen again. The GO teams comprise specialists in fields relating to the incident who are rapidly deployed to the incident location. The teams can have as few as three or as many as a dozen people, depending on the nature of the incident. They will usually include experts in cockpit voice recorder analysis, air traffic control, aircraft performance, human performance, human factors, metrology, flight data analysis, aircraft structure and parts, survival skills, maintenance and metallurgy. Following the investigation, the agency may then choose to hold public hearings on the issue. Ultimately, it will publish a final report, which may include safety recommendations based on its findings. Perhaps a surprise to some, the NTSB has no legal authority to implement or impose its recommendations. They are often implemented by regulators at the federal or state level or individual transportation companies, but they are not required to. However, the NTSB puts out a most wanted list of transport safety improvements which highlight safety critical actions that others need to take to help prevent accidents and save lives. The third leg of the stool is the International Civil Aviation Organization, which, in Annex 13 to the Convention, lays out recognised standards and recommended practices for aircraft accidents and incident investigation. First adopted in 1951 following the Chicago Convention, The Annex outlines the standards and recommended practices that should be employed during accident investigations that are expected of member nations. It also defines such things as what an accident is, in that it is an occurrence associated with the operation of an aircraft which takes place between the time any person boards the aircraft with the intention of flight until such time as all persons have disembarked, in which a. a person is fatally or seriously injured as a result of being in the aircraft or direct contact with any part of the aircraft, including parts which have become detached from the aircraft, or direct exposure to jet blast, except when the injuries are from natural causes, self-inflicted or inflicted by other persons, or when the injuries are to stowaways hiding outside the areas normally available to the passengers and crew, or b. The aircraft sustains damage or structural failure which adversely affects the structural strength, performance or flight characteristics of the aircraft and would normally require major repair or replacement of the affected component except for engine failure or damage. When the damage is limited to the engine, its cowlings or accessories or for damage limited to propellers, wingtips, antennas, tyres, brakes, fairings, small dents or puncture holes in the aircraft skin, or C, 
the aircraft is missing or is completely inaccessible. ICAO gives all the help needed for a nation to compile a comprehensive report laid out in a logical manner and they also give a comprehensive list of measures which promote accident prevention such as a state should establish a voluntary incident reporting system to facilitate the collection of information that may not be captured by a mandatory incident reporting system. A voluntary incident reporting system shall be non-punitive and afford protection to the sources of the information. A non-punitive environment is fundamental to voluntary reporting. Over the years, the accident investigation organisations in most countries have ensured that a just culture exists within aviation that is the envy of many other professions. Put simply, under just culture conditions, individuals are not blamed for honest errors, but are held accountable for willful violations and gross negligence. It is often described as an atmosphere of trust in which people are encouraged and even rewarded for providing essential safety-related information, but in which they are also clear about where the line must be drawn between acceptable and unacceptable behaviour. And so say all of us. I think this is an example of very acceptable behavior, um, doing another <laughs> fantastic plane tale, Captain Nick. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Uh, yeah, it, it can could, it can be a bit of a dry old subject sometimes when you're trying to deal with big organizations like ICAO and uh, NTSB, but... Um, uh, they have fascinating insights into the, particularly the early days of accident investigation and the change that occurred when they stopped just looking for someone to blame and moved to this wonderful safety culture that we have nurtured over the years where uh, we can admit our failings so long as they are genuine failings and not deliberate um, mistakes or deliberately concealed errors, that sort of thing, uh, if safe in the knowledge that there will be no punitive action taken us, uh, against us, um, which I think is fantastic. And this just culture is fundamental to us uh, maintaining the sort of safety records that we do. It absolutely is. Well, again, very, uh, very nice uh, plain tale. Thank you. Uh, Old pilot for that. Cheers, sir. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is from some feedback, audio, or actually video feedback from Mohammed. Happy New Year from Iraq. Oh, says, what a uh, shame. Mohammed has he had left to go to bed. Chat he oh, he was shoot. here earlier. Yeah. Well, it's awfully late there. Um, he's taking a trip to Basra tomorrow. So. Oh, he's uh, taking a trip to uh, Basra uh, tomorrow. Basra. Uh, Happy New Year from Iraq at Baghdad International Airport. This video I have attached, uh, we, it was when we were on duty. We celebrated the New Year at the Tower uh, at, and the honor of cutting the cake. It was by Mr. Hazim because he will retire soon. The nice moments I spent with my colleagues in the Tower, but the most nice and emotional moments 
are watching the fireworks from the tower. It's nice to hear the voices of fireworks, the sounds of happiness, joy, and celebrations after dark years of violent sounds or voices. It's nice to see fire, in quotes, works after times that my country was on fire. Maybe we have issues, but it's normal like any country, uh, any country's economic crisis, political crisis, or social problems. But thankfully, no civil war or people murdered based on uh, backgrounds like it's happened before. I'm glad that my country is moving forward to peace. Yes, I admit it's slow, uh, but at least it's still moving. I wish you a year full of happiness. Best regards, Mohammed, in Baghdad, Iraq. And yeah, well said, Mohammed. Yeah, and uh, he sent this uh, this video, as I said. So let's uh, take a look. Ah, the figgy pudding. Yeah, I wonder if you can get figgy pudding there. I don't know. Well, there's some... There. Yeah. Well, almost figgy pudding. Uh, it's like a nice cake. Yeah, cut the cake. Oh, they're up in the tower. Yeah. I mean, cake and... I'm going to get the candles for it. Ah, nice. All right. Oh, well done. Isn't that nice? See all the fireworks Absolutely. off in the distance? Yeah, a lot of fireworks off in the distance. Yeah. It's great. Crazy. Thank all right. You, yeah, really. Thank for thank you for putting that together. That was we love uh, video. a lot of work. Yeah, we do Just love video. Nice one, so. Yeah. All right. And uh, we wish you all the blessings uh for a, a, a very safe, peaceful, uh, prosperous new year over there in Iraq. All right, uh, let's continue on uh, with this from Robert Tucker. I don't know where he's from. Yes. <laughs> Marietta, probably. Robert, yeah, <laughs> formerly of Marietta. Uh, this is Robert. Um, let's see. I came across this unique documentary about the founder of Air Florida today, Eli Timoner or Timoner. Uh, his youngest daughter, filmmaker Andy Timoner. Uh, began documenting her father's life in February 2021 as his health began to fail following a hospitalization. The resulting film, titled Last Flight Home, had its premiere at the uh, Sundance Film Festival in January of last year. Following Sundance, MTV Documentary Films acquired the worldwide rights to Last Flight Home. And uh, then we'll have a link to that in the show notes, a Wikipedia um, about that. And, uh, yeah, and that's pretty, he just wanted to make everybody aware of this, I guess. So, um, I don't know what else to say. Air Florida, that tragic Air Florida 90, I think it was, uh, that uh, crashed out of, uh, Washington National and, uh, hit the, uh, hit the bridge and so many oh, people. Oh, the Potomac disaster, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, they said, uh, I read a little bit of this Wikipedia article where it talks about the fact that it, the, the airline really never recovered from, from that. Uh, it continued operating for another year or two, I believe, but it finally just succumbed to the, uh, because of all the aftermath of the, uh, 
of the crash. Yep. Yep. All right. Very sad. Thank you, Robert. Hope everything's uh, all right in Tucker, Georgia. Um, this is from Shumpai or Shumpei. Um, hello, Captain Jeff. I am Shumpei. You took me from Huntsville, Alabama, uh, Huntsville, Alabama to Atlanta on August 10th in 2022. The attached picture was taken when I rode in your airplane. Yes, I'm the one that actually took that picture. And seated in the right-hand seat is my favorite first officer, Brent. Um, okay, he, go, he continues. I go to University of North Alabama in Alabama now, and I will transfer to Delta State University in Mississippi and start studying on how to operate airplanes in August uh, 2023. Although I am from Japan, I want to become a pilot, especially an airline pilot, in the future in the U.S., I've recently researched how to become a pilot in the U.S. Since you are a pilot in here today, I want to ask you about this. Your business card says that you are Chief Pilot APG Crew, and I researched your group, Airline Pilot Guys Show. Is your group different from airline companies such as Delta Airlines, American Airlines, or United oh, no, Airlines? No, we're much better. Oh, yeah. We are, we, yeah, we are Elite. different. Elite. <laughs> much different. <laughs> He says, I flew with uh, Acme on that day, but does that this mean you belong to both Acme and your Airline Pilot Guy show group? <laughs> Shunpei. Well, I understand. <laughs> no, he's, you know. he's caught you now, isn't he? You're, yeah. You're in well, a bit of a cleft stick, Jeff. So I think that when you are you your primary language is not English, and we English folk like to use sarcasm and ir- irony it, it's it's a, it's probably something is lost in the translation and I, I and i think that he believes that you know our our show is or maybe he didn't understand that the business card represents the show and we just call ourselves you know pilots chief pilots that kind of thing uh, so he thought you were the chief pilot of a real airline yeah well yeah that's I'm not <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I am. I'm, I'm chief pilot of Acme Airline, but this is very yes. confusing now because I'm not using my real air, airline name right now. And he's like really confused. Sorry, Shunpei. <laughs> One of these days, um, you know, when you are uh, going along in your journey and we meet again, I'll try to explain this clarify. whole thing to you or clarify. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I can do it uh, justice uh, while no. we're doing this on the air. And there, there are some things I some some identifications of airlines and stuff I have to use. And I just don't want to do that on the show on air. So anyway, but it was cool. Thank you very much for following through and, uh, and, and sending in the photo of, of yourself and uh, Brent in our seven seventeen cockpit, Acme airlines. Yeah. That was, yeah. So uh, good luck in your, in your studies and mm -hmm. your, wish to become an airline pilot good luck in that absolutely yeah we're we're with you along the way and if you need any help with anything or have any questions about anything uh please be sure to uh yeah send us some feedback you and brent didn't scare him off that's good. no uh brent and i did not scare shumpei off and i thought it was interesting <laughs> today uh we were flying for our first flights uh, two flights today uh, on this trip were Atlanta to Huntsville and Huntsville back to Atlanta. And while we were going from Atlanta to Huntsville, Brent said, because I mentioned we were going to be recording the show today, and I asked him, well, you know, you're more than welcome to join me today 
And he goes, I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> um, but uh, I said, he said, what are you guys covering today? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, ironically or coincidentally, you remember that guy back in August, uh, you know, out of Huntsville? And uh, so I showed him the picture. He goes, oh, yeah, I remember him. So I said, well, we're recovering his feedback today. So that's kind of cool. All right. Excellent. Um, next item, Kit. Uh, by the way, have you had any barbecue while you've been there, Jeff? No. Ah. Because so we got in. Failed and, on the barbecue stuff. Oh, definitely a fail because, well, I don't, They maybe they have barbecue here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Not known for its barbecue, actually. Um, okay. But uh, no, I pretty much had to get into the room and just start setting up all the equipment for doing the show. And then uh, Rebecca came in and gave her a little tour of uh, the current evolution of my on the road uh, rig and uh, introduced her to Hillel. Introduced, oh yeah, I, I did introduce her to Hillel. He had to get out of it. She needed to use the bathroom, and, <laughs> and I said, "Hillel, come on, go go in the hall and do something. You know, occupy yeah. yourself yeah. out there. Yeah. Make yeah. yourself scarce." Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, I didn't have a lot of time to go and do anything. I, I, I've apologized to Brent because I knew that I was being antisocial on this trip because we have an early morning uh, go tomorrow morning and. And uh, but the nice thing is it's only one leg back tomorrow, so nice. That's Good. what it is on paper anyway. A, a one-legged pilot. A one-legged pilot. Yeah. And uh, but I get to see him again on Monday, Monday through Wednesday, another three-day trip. So well, really, perhaps. Well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I got a little confused. I thought I was not with Brent on this trip, and I, Liz even asked me, and I said, "No, I'm with somebody else." And then this morning, driving to work, um, I get this text. It shows up on my Apple CarPlay thing, and it's Brent. I'm thinking, oh, what the heck is Brent up this early for sending me a text? And I read on it. holidays. Yeah, and I said, uh, or he said, well, you you up for uh, some some uh, McDonald's uh, chicken McGriddles? And I'm thinking, what? And I was like, how did you get this trip? <laughs> he thought I was joking. Uh, I wasn't joking. I really didn't think I was flying with him today. So I am losing my mind, basically, uh, what I'm trying to say. Oh, poor Jeff. I know. I just, I didn't think I was flying with him until Monday, but I was wrong. All right. Um, let's continue with uh, this feedback from Kit. Uh, he says, great story. P.S. Love the podcast. Thanks for all the hard work and dedication. I think Kit's and a, a woman, actually. I think Kit's Kit a Kit is a woman. Okay. Um, and this is a link to a story uh, from people.com. An 18-year-old pilot flying family to breakfast makes an emergency landing. Um, let's see. Uh, he says he, he heard his grandma crying in the back. I'm just glad it ended the way it did. Brock Peters, 18 years old, said of the landing he made while flying with three passengers over a mountain pass in California. And those I was just going to say, just wait till you're an airline pilot, uh, Brock Peters, and you can hear 300 people crying. crying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, usually when I hear people crying, it's just because they can't believe how, how great that landing was. <laughs> um, they're in awe. They're in awe, yeah. Uh, just months after getting his pilot's license, an 18-year-old faced a scary situation while fl flying with his family in California. Brock Peters was taking his family to breakfast at Riverside Municipal Airport in a single-engine plane on Monday morning when he heard a pop from his engine while flying over a mountain pass. Uh, we're coming through the pass, and I hear a boom. It's interesting. He says boom 
the journalists that are writing this piece say a pop. Yeah, boom is probably. Anyway, uh, and then I, uh, he hears a boom and loses all his engine power. Quickly, he realized the safest thing to do was to make an emergency landing. <laughs> well, probably the only thing he could do. I uh, told uh, CBS Los Angeles that due to the terrain, he was unable to notify the nearby airport tower, but that he did call his mom first. <laughs> now, <laughs> mom, now, my, en- my engine's just fired. I'm trying to decide where I'm going to put it down, but I just wanted to. <laughs> no, I don't know. So I'm not really sure what the sequence of events is here with the. And I don't know. Sometimes I, this is crazy. Sometimes the people writing these articles no. don't quite <laughs> grasp Never. exactly what's going on. So I'm thinking yeah. maybe maybe that was the call he made after he safely landed yeah, the I airplane. Think that's probably the first call he made when he got on the ground. That's what I think too. Safely. Anyway, so I can hear my grandma crying in the back. He recalled, "I'm like, I've got to tune her out. Focus on what I need to do and get this plane down safely." After I call my mom, and make sure everybody's okay. <laughs> uh, the emergency landing on El Cajon Boulevard took place shortly before 10 a.m. local time. So it was the uh, Cajon Pass. Many of you out there, well, you know, especially those living in cojones. California, <laughs> um, uh, know the uh, El Cajon Pass. And uh, in order to make the landing, the team had to find a way underneath a series of power lines, according to KTLA, including the pilot. Four people were on board at the time, none of whom were injured. Although he's a relatively new pilot, having only gotten his license four months ago, Peter said that he knew he was going to make the landing. But to not hit anything, that's God's intervention right there, he told CBS Los Angeles. Adding at another point during the interview, I'm just glad it ended the way he did. Now, I, I think I, they had a, um, a video of him and they were interviewing him over the interview, uh, interviewing him over the interview, uh, interviewing him on video. And he, he actually said, now it makes it sound like he used his incredible skills to avoid the power lines. But he said in this video <laughs> interview out of, out of his own mouth, he goes, after I landed, I looked up and saw all the power lines. You said, I don't know how I didn't hit any of them. He didn't even see the power lines when he was coming in for the land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's quite, quite likely. Yeah. A lot, an awful lot going on, but uh, I'm yeah. glad he didn't club or something. Yeah. Tim Van Ram in our live live audience says, that takes cojones. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, uh, the Al Cajones Boulevard kind. Okay. Uh, anyway, good job, Brock. And yep. well uh, done, mate. Uh, our best yeah. to your mom. Okay. And grandma. And grandma. She's and grandma. Crying, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's still out there crying um, because they left this her on the side is, of the road. Great. Um, <laughs> this is a great way to end the show. Yeah, this is a great way to end the show. All right. Uh, uh, number nine, our last one, Nick. And uh, the, <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is pretty good. I got uh, some, We got some feedback from Stan. Who, hey, uh, Jeff. Yeah. I see you. <laughs> Do you? Well, yeah. Stan, Stan likes to dibble dabble uh, with the uh, with the Photoshop. Apparently, uh, we were on the last episode. We talked about I think it was the last one. Yeah, yeah. Talked yeah. about the uh, putting, trying to reveal or not conceal that is uh, yeah. the uh, pistol and bullets in a uh, jar. Putting of, your uh, pistol in the in in the in the butter. <laughs> Yeah, in the yeah. peanut butter. Yeah, we so we were talking uh, about what brand is best. Yeah, we were talking about what brand's best, and Liz, of course, said she prefers Skippy, and Nick, some brand that nobody has ever heard of. Some um, very nice stuff. Okay, and I, I, I prefer Jeff. So uh, we got this from Stan. So go ahead, reveal this amazing artwork. 
realistic. I think very your realistic. Falling off there, Jeff. Uh, I, I don't know. It's been a while. It must have been when I was younger when this picture was taken because I can't turn my <laughs> neck that far anymore. <laughs> I had darker hair, hair too. So it's a picture of, well, apparently me with my head cocked at a very uh, unusual angle. And I'm holding uh, three jars of Jeff. I'm sure it's smooth <laughs> peanut butter. Yeah. And yeah, uh, the, so the caption says, smooth criminal. <laughs> but Tim, yeah, Tim's got very a good. great comment here. It's very good. Captain oh, Nigel calls yeah. you. <laughs> Tim says, it's Captain Jeff. <laughs> and, that's a, and that's what Nigel calls me, by the way. <laughs> oh, he does, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I don't think it has anything to do with the uh, the peanut butter, but uh, or maybe it I does. I don't know. that might have to be part of the oh, cover. It might be. It might be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Liz thinks that this should be part of our cover art, perhaps. Um, oh, sorry for that to the person out there that gets mad when he hears me saying and repeating what what Liz is saying. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, it happens. Yeah, it does. And I, I guess every once in a while, I, I should play this uh, this uh, what do they call that? Um, disclaimer. Disclaimer. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, if I can only find it. Uh, it's got to be here somewhere. Um, hmm. Maybe I should find Added it before I start talking. Yeah, well, here it is. Oh, good. Pardon the interruption. When we're recording the show live, the only person who can hear me is Captain Jeff. Now he's decided to include my audio here in the post-show edit. Lucky you. Enjoy. Okay, now we just played it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> That was smooth. Thanks. <coughs> See, I told you I could find it. That was very smooth, Jeff. I know. Just like the Jeff. No, no wonder you're such a smooth criminal. <laughs> smooth criminal. <sighs> All right. That is. Time to wrap this baby this is up. Gonna, we're going to wrap this thing up. Is that it? Thank the Lord for that. Tie a pretty bow around it and uh, throw it out the window. <laughs> we're going <gonna, laughs> gonna, to point you to our website, airlinepilotguy.com. It's awesome. Just so many great things there. Check it out if you don't mind. And uh, we are also, oh, I needed to quickly say um, that the my email provider, I just remember because of the website and domain name hosting and website hosting, all that kind of stuff. One of the things that's hosted is my email domain slash domains. And uh, the company that I do that with decided to switch over to another company. They're using Microsoft's uh, Outlook, uh, Outlook or Exchange 365, Outlook 360. I don't know. It's some Microsoft email product. And uh, it's completely messed everything up. <laughs> so I do apologize. If you have sent me some email in the last week or two, like Captain Nick did, like about a week ago, that I don't re remember receiving, I do apologize for that. It's because there are some some potholes in the roll, road of my uh, email uh, <laughs> thing. So I'm trying to get that all straightened out. Hopefully I'll get that done soon. But if you send me something and uh, you haven't, I think the feedback email is working okay, but it's my personal Jeff at airline pilot guy that.com. That's uh, well, we want not lots working. More right. feedback, so yeah, we do want up. more feedback. So I think that um, I think it's, I think it's working feedback, feedback at airline pilot guy.com. If you want to send feedback and we're also on social media and, and Nick, um, are you finished? Doing whatever you're doing there on the floor. Are you getting some more beers opened up or what? What are you doing there? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> knocking all the empties over. Oh, I was wondering what all that noise was. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about social media. Yeah. And uh, it's like we got a nice social media message uh, for Captain Jeff just today. And, um, uh, of course, Jeff doesn't have the time to go to all our social media um, programs no. and review everything that comes in. I so, just don't want to. Uh, please, uh, if you're going to want to send some feedback in, e- email. It's by far the best way. Anyway, um, despite that, um, Liz and I are often on Facebook. So you can uh, look for that as Airline Pilot Guy, or one word. And on Twitter, it's at APG Crew. And on Instagram, it's APG Crew without the at. So obviously, we're not at in the Instagram. Nor that where it's at. understand that. That's where it's at. Yeah. All right. Well, and we're also on. Did that work? Can yeah. I do that again? Perhaps? Yeah, no, that was fine. No, perfect. I mean, I, oh, I couldn't okay. have done it better. Um, let's continue with uh, Slack. Slack. Right. Let's see if. Hillel's ready. To Make go. sure you uh, put your the toilet's on leaking, it. Jeff. Hillel. Hillel, you have time for slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Okay. <laughs> oh, come you on. You've got nice new Sony ear uh, earpieces. I see headphones. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I've had these for a while. All right, here we oh. go. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, tell us about slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. I need a towel. I got shampoo in my eyes. Sorry. I'll be right there. All right. Uh, I guess we need to wrap this you thing send up. Send Rebecca so in. Yeah, well, she's already gone. She left. Uh, <laughs> I should have mentioned that. She left uh, right after the uh, plane tail. Or That's during the very podcast. sensible of her. Yeah, and uh, that <laughs> was nice. to me a little. It was nice uh, seeing her today, and she uh, brought me some food, a nice pizza. Thank you, Rebecca. You're, oh, you're wow. a darling. Great lady. And some salad and uh, some water. So anyway, um, yeah, so great to uh, see everybody in our live audience while we do the show. Make sure you follow us on social media. Check out the website. And um, hope to see you again next week on another episode of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Until then, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats
I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how did I 